just listened to Secret Origins Episode 8. Ryan Daly just told Roy Thomas to take his head out of his ass. Oh my gosh. Ryan Daly has balls of steel. Listening to episode 9 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring stories of the Star Spangled Kid, also known as Skyman, as well as the Golden Age Flash. to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this time I'll be reviewing the origin stories of the star-spangled Kid and Stripesy, as well as the original Flash, Jay Garrick. My first guest this episode is my Twitter soulmate, Greg Arujo. How are you doing, Greg? Pretty good. How are you today, Ryan? I'm great. Thank you very much for joining the Secret Origins podcast. Uh, even though you don't have a fan blog of your own, I've always enjoyed talking comics with you on Twitter. And when I first decided to do this show, you were one of the first people that I reached out to as a potential guest. Just because oh. I've for for a long time, I felt like we we're on the same page in terms of like our likes, what we think, how we feel about comics, and what we like what we dislike. Um, so I, I am very flattered and very happy to have you on the show. Hey, I feel like Vibe joining the Justice League. Um, <laughs> I've listened to the other episodes, and I think I'm included in this bunch. Um, okay, if if you if you know what you're doing, okay. You gotta set your bar a little bit higher. <laughs> well, so this is my first podcast appearance ever, so yeah. Hopefully, I don't end up like Vibe strangled in the middle of an alleyway <laughs> by the end of this. But 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 thirty years later, you'll be on a television show. That's, this is true. <laughs> all right. Well, before we start talking about this issue, I like to make sure that all of my listeners know what the heck the Secret Origins comic is and what this show is all about. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling or retelling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And with Roy Thomas writing and editing a big chunk of the series while he was writing Infinity Incorporated, it made sense that there would be some crossover with the characters. Sadly, everyone's favorite Infinitor, Northwind, doesn't make the cut. So today we have to settle for Star-Spangled Kid, a.k.a. Skyman. Greg, you've read a lot more Infinity Incorporated than I have. Uh, would you say that you're a fan of Star-Spangled Kid? I'd have to say nobody's a fan of Star-Spangled Kid. <laughs> He's almost an afterthought in the series. In fact, he was an afterthought. Uh, Roy wanted to 
focus in on the, the sons and daughters of the Justice Society. Much more attention is placed on those relationships, which particularly at the beginning of the series. Star Spangled Kid just kind of just kind of is there. When did he like in relation to when this issue came out? When did he become Skyman? When did he change his name? He became Skyman in issue thirty-one of Infinity Incorporated. This was a few months after Crisis. The Justice Society had already been thrown into their Ragnarok limbo. Uh, at that point, the the Earth Two elements to the series have pretty much been taken out because obviously the Earths were combined into one thanks to Crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so the character had been for a while during the series been saying, well, I'm kind of too old to be called Star-Spangled Kid, decided on this new name and a new look. The outfit feels very 80s, in an 80s attempt to be retro. Yeah, I think so. I mean, here's the thing about this costume. It was designed by Todd McFarlane. It's amazing that it doesn't have a cape that bends all sort of space-time laws of physics. I don't know. And if he doesn't have that doesn't have the cape. If you look at some of McFarlane's uh, Infinity Incorporated, he likes to give uh, Sylvester some uh, wild hair. So maybe that's his version of a cape for this series. <laughs> okay, well, uh, let's talk a little bit about the publication history of this character and how he was originally created. Uh, the Star-Spangled Kid, whose civilian name is Sylvester Pemberton, a name that's only marginally easier to say than Star-Spangled Kid and his sidekick, Stripesy, better known as Pat Dugan. Nice, simple Irish name, that. Uh, They debuted in Star-Spangled Comics, issue 1, in October of 1941. They were created by writer Jerry Siegel, yes, the same Jerry Siegel who helped create Superman, and artist Hal Sherman. The two deviated from the normal superhero dynamic by making the younger part of the duo the leader, and the older one the strongman sidekick. The origin of Star-Spangled Kid and Stripesy was eventually told in Star-Spangled Comics issue 18, and the heroes continued to appear in that book until issue 86, which came out in 1948. Meanwhile, the two had been serving as 29% of the Seven Soldiers of Victory over in leading comics since as early as 1942, roughly a year after they were created. After Sylvester and Pat faded into obscurity with so many other Golden Age heroes, they were reintroduced with the other Soldiers of Victory in 1972 in the pages of Justice League of America, issue 100. Three years after that, the Star-Spangled Kid returned in the resurrected All-Star comics. Then, after a couple years, Sylvester split from the All-Star Squadron to form Infinity Incorporated, a team comprised of the children and legacies of the Justice Society of America, as Greg already told you. And shortly before this issue of Secret Origins came out, Sylvester Pemberton changed his name from the Star-Spangled Kid to the more adult-sounding Skyman. And that brings us about to this point, as far as my notes go. Uh, Greg, did you have any other notes on the Seven Soldiers or Infinity Incorporated, as far as this character goes? Yeah, Hal Sherman seems to be only in the comic book industry for, like, less than ten years. And the only thing he seems to have drawn was issues of Star-Spangled Kid in either Star-Spangled Comics or or the Seven Soldiers of Victory stories. I guess after Star-Spangled Kid, he felt like he was done with the industry. He had done all that there needed to be done. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with the name. I wonder if he moved on to bigger and better things as they they would have considered. I I don't know. Part of me wondered if he was enlisted in the Army and and – but I couldn't. I couldn't even find a uh, an obituary. Hmm. Do you know when he was starting and when he sort of faded out? Do you know what the period was or like actually his, his last Mar- published work? 
his first issue was in 1936. Okay, pretty early. And his last one was May 1944. And he did some stuff before the first issue of Star Spangled Kid. But once he got with that character, that's all he did. Hmm. Or pretty much that's all that he did. That was kind of weird. So he may have gone into like professional advertising or just a different career. Might have just, just said, like you said, that he was done with it. He did all that he needed to do within the industry. I mean, or he possibly could have gone to the war and could have died. But As I said, my Google skills must be weak because I couldn't find anything about him other hmm. than just a few random things about Star Spangled Kid. Hmm. Okay. Roy well, Thomas probably knows. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure Roy Thomas has every bit of information about him, but um, if any of our uh, our research enthusiastic listeners are, are interested in a little homework, um, write in in the comments section of this episode and tell us a little bit more about Hal Sherman. The other thing about Star Spangled Kid is that yes, his first appearance was in August 1941. Um, Captain America appeared March 1941. So this is one of those instances in which I think that uh, the people over at DC saw what was going on and went, hmm, what can we do? It certainly seems like a, a response to another more successful patriotic hero. And again, I, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, when, when you look at the timeline, we were not yet at war as a country yet, um, but Captain America was punching out Hitler on comics covers, and we had these guys fighting Nazis or Ratsies, whatever you want. <laughs> you had Uncle Sam in 1940, the mm-hmm. character S.H.I.E.L.D., in also in 1940, Miss America in 1941, Liberty Bell in 1942. We were just awash in patriotic heroes at that time. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll learn the origin of the patriotic partners, Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy. Stick around. Hey, everybody, I'm Paul Spitaro. I don't know if you know me, but I'm a regular on Back to the Bins, along with my friends, Dr. Bill Robinson. Hello. And Mr. Scott Gardner. Hey, how's it going? Andy's been asking us for a promo for the show for the longest time, and Bill has been writing it for the longest time. Bill, you got that promo written yet? Uh... Okay, so, anyway, what we do is we review three comic books. We try to do it every week. Usually it's a Marvel, a DC, and a Captain Canuck book for Scott. So... Tune in every week to Back to the Bins to listen to our show. You can find us at twotruefreaks.com. And we're back, and we're looking at Secret Origins Issue 9, which came out on September 11th, 1986. The cover by Tom Grinberg and Pablo Marcus features Jay Garrick outracing the classic Star-Spangled Kid and Stripesy with the then-current Skyman in the background. Uh, Greg, what do you think of this cover? Here's the truth. I have looked on Mike's Amazing World several times, I always miss this cover. This cover does nothing for me. It's amazing. (laughs) I could have it filtered down to just DC for September 1986, and I still miss it. It's boring. It looks like a bunch of color forms on on a yellow page. Part of me wonders if if it was originally supposed to be a who's who's page with uh, Skyman in the, uh, the Serpent. Yeah, I mean, like the, he's backed out. He's just washed out in purple. It's a weird, it's a weird image for him there. Um, I also think like it, it's cluttered with text. 
Um, we get the Secret Origins banner, and then we have the Golden Age Flash and Star Spangled Kid with their creative teams. And it's noteworthy that Roy Thomas did write both of these stories um, because he would be taking an off month in, in the next issue. In issue 10, he did not write one of the stories. Um, and then even below that, below the Star Spangled Kid, which is X'd out with what looks like a red permanent marker, it says, now he is Skyman. Learn why inside, and don't forget Stripesy. Um, I, I think every time I look at this cover, I have to check my reflexes to to think that this cover is damaged because of the red X through Star Spangled. Oh, yeah, I'm exactly. It's just, it's as I said, it's boring. Uh, if you look at the other Secret Origin covers, they make sense. They'll have the characters interacting in some fashion for the most part. Um, they look a lot sharper than this. Part of me wonders if this wasn't just kind of done up real quick over the weekend. And maybe. I mean, Grinberg is the artist in the, the Star Spangled Kid, so maybe he was just playing around with sketches and came up with something like this. It's it's not a great cover. Um, I, I do like his depiction of Jay Garrick kind of in the center. But besides that, meh, yeah. It's, it's certainly not one that would make you rush out to buy this one unless you were foolish enough to have to do a podcast episode about it. I don't know. 1986 me picked it up off the stands for some reason. <laughs> the other, as I was doing that research, the other kind of crazy little uh, historical fa- footnote, um, given that this, as we were just saying, the stars and stripes, the patriotic heroes, and this issue did come out 15 years before the terrorist attacks of September 11th. Um, Kind of. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting as well. Okay, well, um, are you ready to do the story synopsis? I am. Secret Origins, issue number nine, the Star Spangled Kid origin, was written by Roy Thomas. The penciler was Tom Grinberg. The inker, Mike Gustavich. Letterer, David C. Wiest. Colorist, Carl Gafford. And the coordinating editor was Bob Greenberg. This issue takes place exactly on page 18 of Infinity, Inc., Number 31, where the team is assembled for a meeting. Sylvester Pemberton is talking with Nuclon, the godson of the Golden Age Adam and Brainwave Jr., son of Brainwave. They're discussing the kids' change from Star Spangled Kid to the flashier Skyman as they wait for Silver Scarab, the son of Hawkman, and Fury, the daughter of the Golden Age Wonder Woman, to arrive at the Infinity Inc. meeting. Nuclon thinks that the costume and the name change isn't half bad. Sylvester thinks it's not only great, but it's real high concept, as they say in the movie business. Brainwave Jr. thinks it's at least a name you don't have to salute, even though it sounds a wee bit 1940-ish. Sylvester reminds Brainwave and Nuclon that he's also a wee bit 1940-ish. Brainwave, speaking pretty much for the audience, says it's hard to believe that Sylvester was born nearly 60 years ago from the 1986 perspective. Nuclon, also speaking for the audience, admits it's going to be harder for him to stop thinking of Sylvester as the star-spangled kid. Sylvester reminds everyone that he hasn't been a kid for a while. And as pretty much as these secret origins pretty much start up when framed like this, Nuclon asks, how old were you when you and Pat Dugan teamed up? 13? 14? Pat course, being Sylvester's old sidekick, Stripesy. Sylvester, finding himself in probably the worst splash page ever, said it's something like that and quickly changes the subject, complaining about how Fury and Scarlet Scarab are late for their meeting. 
Sylvester begins to think that it was a lot easier when it was just Stripesy and him against the bad guys than running an entire superhero corporation. I can still remember the day Dugan and I met as clearly as it was yesterday. Cue the flashback, sound effects, and some stereotypical 1940s newsreel music, and we now find ourselves in a movie theater on July 4th, 1941. At least I think it's July 4th, 1941, which I'll get into a little bit later. In the months before the United States entered World War II, a newsreel announced it's now time for every true American to stand up and be counted and oppose the evils of Nazism, fascism, and Japanese imperialism. In the darkened theater, a mysterious man with a German accent whispers to his friend, Are all the men ready? Heinrich, because what else was he going to be named, replied, Whenever you give the signal. Suddenly, a group of German-American Nazi sympathizers start disrupting the theater, saying such things as down with the American flag and perhaps even more prophetic. The stars and stripes are for fools, and a riot begins to emerge between the sympathizers and the other moviegoers. Sylvester Pemberton, proving to be the saddest little rich boy in 1941, is sitting alone in a theater box he bought for himself on this fateful evening, decides to jump into the fray and begins to confront the Nazi sympathizers. While he isn't the first person to strike a blow, he might be the first casualty as he is struck from behind. Meanwhile, in the upper balcony, Pat Dugan, also in attendance, cries out, Them dirty ratsies! I might have known better than to try and see a patriotic movie up here in Yorkville. And because he's upset he wasted his money on this movie, jumps from the balcony, which, which must be the lowest balcony in movie theater history, and joins the fight, quickly taking out two people as he lands. As Pat takes out a third sympathizer, he says, Since I'm a mechanic when it ain't my night off, I ought to charge you for this ride, which lets us know Pat is a mechanic, as if this information is somehow important. The police arrive and, and take away the rioters. Once the rioters are gone, Pat notices a mysterious telegram that must have been dropped by one of the rioters. Pat picks it up, reads it, and instead of giving it to the police like a reasonable person, just drops it where he left it and wanders off to puzzle it out. At this point in the narration, Sylvester kind of proves to be a bit of a jerk with his insulting. Unfortunately, though fighting was Dugan's specialty in his off hours, reading wasn't. Yeah, there was probably a more tactful way of explaining that Dugan was illiterate. I love how he continues to just insult his partner left and right throughout this story. Sylvester then also finds a note, also not giving it to the authorities, because why would you? Realizes the telegram reads almost as if it is in code, as there isn't a hangar street in New York. Outside the theater, oblivious to each other, Sylvester and Pat give their statements to the police. One police officer laments the writers will probably get off with a slapped wrist. The other says the fateful words, God, sometimes I wish the American flag could just come to life long enough to pay him back for all those insults. Could this inspire Sylvester and Pat? Well, this is the DC Universe, and this is an issue of secret origins. Returning to their respective homes, they each fashion a couple flag-influenced outfits, as one does in the DC Universe. Sylvester borrowing the family limo and Dugan driving a familiar-looking green car, independent of each other, begins searching for the rioters. Kind of as an aside, I remember from an old issue of Captain America, Captain America was inspired to join the army because of something he saw in a, a movie, uh, in a newsreel. I kind of almost have to wonder if he happened to be in the same theater at the same time as Sylvester and Pat. That'd be interesting in, in the Amalgam universe, yes. <laughs> 
Anyway, while Pat goes to look for a non-existent hangar street, Sylvester has broken the code. The trick was to read every second word. Meet Tuesday at 9 o'clock between main hangars of Flower Field. And there they are. And this is why I wonder if it takes place on July 4th, 1941, because July 4th, 1941 is on a Friday mm. and not on a Tuesday. So I don't know if time has passed between the, the movie theater incident and them getting their costumes together and going out looking for Nazis, because that's a lot of time between well, Friday, July 4th, and Tuesday, the Tuesday following. It could make a certain amount of sense. I mean, it does seem like they go right to their homes and fashion these costumes pretty quickly, and then, and then are like right out the door. It's this doesn't seem like just like running home and like finding the next thing in your wardrobe and heading back out. And these costume changes would have taken more than a couple minutes. But and here's the thing: is did Stripesy have that outfit just <laughs> lying around? And and well, I kind of might see how a rich family might have a costume for a costume party that kind of would look like that. But I don't know. I mean, I can I can understand Stripesy's a little bit more. Essentially, I mean. The pants in these superhero costumes are always kind of tricky because you wonder how much they're like skin tart, like, or how much he could be wearing blue jeans and like the striped shirt. I mean, a, a dock worker could have been had, could have had a shirt like that. But yeah, but Star Spangled Kids, he has a cowl and his is a really interesting like shape and, and color. Anyway, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll get more into that. But as Sylvester now dressed as Star Spangled Kid leaps into action as the Nazi saboteurs are loading dynamite from a plane into a truck. Star Spangled Kid is quickly noticed by the two guards and without any training at all. After all, it is the Golden Age, quickly dispatches them. At the same time, Dugan, driving around, looking for the non-existent street, hears over the radio unidentified Nazi thugs are battling it out at Flower Field Airport. Dugan decides to drive out to the airport to help, but arrives just as the police are mopping things up. A little early for Halloween, noticing Dugan's costume, I came to help out against those Nazi spies, Dugan says. Well, you're too late. Some youngster called the Star Spangled Kid cleaned up the whole shebang already. Although a bit dejected because he had already had an imitator, Dugan hangs around a bit only to see one of the rioters from the theater had managed to escape detection from Star Spangled Kid and the police quietly making his getaway. Dugan decides to follow him to a tennis stadium. Because there is only room enough for one patriotic hero in the spy-busting game, not counting Uncle Sam, Mr. America, Miss America, etc., Dugan is determined to run the Star Spangled Kid out of business. Turns out the Nazi saboteur has escaped with the dynamite from the airport, once again proving the ineffectiveness of the police, and the plan is to use it on this tennis stadium. Of course, what better way to strike fear into New Yorkers than to blow up a tennis stadium? <laughs> Looking for destruction, are you boys? Well, I got plenty to hand out. Is this the star-spangled kid you spoke of, one of the Nazis asks? No, but those stripes, perhaps they work together. Those are fighting words to Pat. Stripesy is the real McCoy and quickly takes out the two saboteurs. As one of the Nazis offer to pay Dugan if he doesn't stop them, Stripesy replies he may only be a garage mechanic who doesn't make much money as a Rockefeller. But the day he takes a not, uh, takes money from one of Hitler's bully boys is the day you can bury him where the sun doesn't shine. Cut to Star Spangled Kid listening to a police report about unidentified Nazi thugs in a brawl at Woody Hills Tennis Stadium and complaining about the speed of the borrowed family limo. Star Spangled Kid learns from what appears to be the smallest police officer on the New York Police Department, (laughs) 
about how a big guy dressed in red and white stripes calling him Stripesy had turned the thugs into the police. Which kind of leads me to think, why did he name himself Stripesy? <laughs> As the star-spangled kid races off, the police officer thinking nothing about a 13-year-old kid dressed in a star-spangled costume driving a limo, he thinks to himself, Stripesy, some big lug got the idea for me, probably. I'd like to get a hold of that floor flusher and teach him a lesson. You're right. That, that cop has got to be tiny. Cause, uh, One of Al Pratt's relatives? Yeah, because Sylvester is a young kid, and he's a good head taller than this guy. Yeah, it's, it, it just I had to look at that panel for like a, a few minutes and go, what is going on? Is that perspective? No, I oh, don't think it is. He's just short. He's like three feet tall. <laughs> I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure the New York Police Department has some kind of requirements about height and weight. He must know somebody who knows a guy. Yeah. <laughs> Damn corruption. <laughs> All right. Meanwhile, in the, the hidden Nazi office, the leader of the group isn't happy his plans have been stopped by this mysterious star-spangled kid and stripesy. He decides on a course of action. Cut back to the Star-Spangled Kid in the limo, hearing a bulletin about Nazi agents attacking the boiler room of Truppert's Brewery. He quickly speeds off in the direction of the brewery, only to be quickly knocked unconscious by the Nazis who had sent out a riot call on the police band and were prepared to deal with whomever decided to investigate. Star-Spangled Kid awakens next to the man dressed in red and white stripes, both tied up within the brewery's boiler room. Two Nazi thugs are rigging the boiler to explode, hopefully killing both Sylvester and Pat. Obviously, they did not have bullets in their gun. As the Nazis leave, one of them boasts, in true movie villain style, it may comfort you both to know that you'll not be the only ones to explode tonight. When your compatriots watch the rocket's red glare, they will be tremendously surprised. As the pressure builds in the boiler, Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy meet for the first time and take the time not to escape, but to throw insults at each other. After they get it out of their system, Sylvester realizes that they probably should be focusing on escaping the death trap. Separately, they might not be able to escape, but working together? Star Spangled Kid gets up onto Stripesy's back, then smashes his chin into the glass gauge, causing the steam to jet out, the pressure reducing, saving Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy. Not sure that's how a boiler works, but I'm not a I'm not an expert on that. It was the forties, you know. <laughs> Using the shards of broken glass, Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy free themselves from their bonds. As they cut their, the rope, Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy you, once again use the time to resume insulting each other. Initially, they decide to capture the thugs separately. However, once outside, the Nazis have stolen Star Spangled Kid's limo, but leaving Stripesy's car behind. Reluctantly, Star Spangled Kid asks Stripesy for a lift. However, Stripesy wonders, why should he even help the kid? Star-Spangled Kid lets him know that he has figured out where the Nazis were headed. As they speed off, Star-Spangled Kid tells Stripesy to head to the 4th of July firework display at Central Park. Earlier, the Nazi bigwig mentioned people watching Rocket's Red Glare, and Star-Spangled Kid figured it was the Nazi bigwig's way of mocking them, imagining they would never escape the boiler room in time. Star-Spangled Kid takes a moment to admire the rate of Stripesy's car. Stripesy comments that while this car can definitely move, it wouldn't compare to the Star Rocket Racer he has designed, a combination of car and airplane capable of traveling several hundred miles in the air. Only he doesn't have the cash to build it and hasn't been able to find any investor. Not one to miss an opportunity, Star-Spangled Kid replies, 
the money men probably figured that anyone who mangles the English language wouldn't do much better with a carburetor. Once again, at the Central Park firework displays, the kid and Stripes, he discovered the Nazis planting the dynamite into the fireworks. Deciding to work together, the two quickly take down the thugs. Although, Stripesy admittedly isn't happy the Nazis give him second billing after the star-spangled kid. The police arrive on scene to see what's going on, recognizing some of the Nazis and wondering who are the two characters dressed up like the flag. Why? You might say, we're the American flag, officer, the star-spangled kid says. Come to life for a night, right, big fella? The Nazi agent admits that it isn't a disgrace to lose to them. Together, Star Spangled Kid and Strangey could defeat an army. Which is a line of dialogue that just stops the story in its tracks, I think. I agree. <laughs> it's obviously, this Nazi is trying to make himself feel better about getting beat up by a 13-year-old kid. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that one in the notes. But continue. At that moment, Star Spangled Kid and Stripes, he decide to put aside their grudges and work together as a team. Shaking hands so tightly it causes a red flash, Stripes, he notices Star Spangled Kid's father's limo has a scratch or two on it and offers, offers his services as a mechanic. And that's how the Pemberton family gained a mechanic and a chauffeur, the Star Spangled Kid, a partner, and Sylvester Pemberton, a good friend? Uh, maybe. <laughs> From there, the two developed the acrobatic teamwork and used it against such foes as Dr. Weird and the Needle. They soon joined the Seven Soldiers of Victory until they were defeated by the Nebula Man and hurled into a time warp until rescued by the JLA and the JSA. After emerging from the time warp, Stripes retired and Star Spangled Kid joined the JSA for a while and ultimately founded Infinity Inc. And since he wasn't a kid anymore, he decided to change his name to Skyman. This is where the flashback ends, and Fury arrives to announce the Silver Scarab is gone, packing his bags in the middle of the night without leaving a note. The story ends with Sylvester thinking to himself, here we go again. Well, it serves me right for starting my own super team, I guess. I just hope whatever's wrong with the Scarab, it's nothing serious. A mysterious text box lets us know it is serious, as discriminating readers are learning in current issues Infinity, Inc. Hope you're one of them. <laughs> That's a hard sell. I tell you, when I was reading this story, I was trying to figure out if the goal of this story was to get people to read Infinity Inc. I would not be surprised. At this point in the series, we're about 19 issues away from the book being canceled. It, 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 if we're on issue, it's, it takes place during issue 31. Issue 33, if it's not on the stands, is about ready to hit the stands. Mm-hmm. The series then ends on issue 53. Okay. So I'm wondering if Rory started to f- see the writing on the wall and mm-hmm. like, try to get as many new readers as possible. At this point, since they've removed the uh, the Earth 2 elements, this series started to feel really generic. Well, it that's the hook. I mean – It, it was the hook. And once you took it away, I mean there's really no difference – between them and, say, the Outsiders. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, and, and at that time, the other hook to this series was the fact that it took place in Los Angeles. Not very many teams took place in, in Los Angeles. But during this period of time, the Outsiders were in Los Angeles. The Green Lantern Corps was in Los Angeles. They were just one of the crowd at this point. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, going back to that line that I, 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 I pointed out um, – as the as the cops are taking away the Nazis, 
Their leader says it was no disgrace to lose to them. We never had a chance. Together, the star-spangled kid in stripes, he could defeat an army. That line has got to be from the original script. From, I... from issue 18. Like, or, or whenever the story was... Like, I... I can't fathom that Roy Thomas came up with that line himself. He's capable of some horrible dialogue, but that line feels like it came right out of the 1940s. I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're right. I, I can't find the original story. It I don't know if it's ever been reprinted. I would be interested to see it. Yeah, he said their origin was told in, in Star Spangled Comics issue 18. This story feels like he probably took more liberties with it. This story doesn't feel like his treatment of the, the Golden Age Superman and the Golden Age Captain Marvel. Or even the, in this issue, the Golden Age Flash. Right, right. Yeah, which... <laughs> okay, I'll have a different conversation with that some, later this episode. But yeah, th- this feels like he was he was definitely putting more of himself into it, and probably because he had been living with this character of Star Spangled Kid for years. Um, but that line... I just got to that, and I was like, "Wait, the bad guy, the Nazi, is saying no? It was we're we're not. It's no disgrace to lose to them. They really are that good." I was like, "Okay, that that line was written in 1942." Yeah, it does sound like something out of the end of a, like a television show or or a 1940s type of movie. Yeah, so. at, right before the credits roll, right. um, the complete opposite reaction to that. Um, uh, the bottom of page 15, when Sylvester is giving his very abbreviated recount of the soldiers, the seven soldiers of victory in their story. Mm-hmm. And the last line, that caption on that page, we learned later that Wing had died in the battle. Kind of explaining what happened to the Crimson Avengers sidekick. There is no reason whatsoever for that line to be in this story. We never, it, we never hear of the Crimson Avenger. That is not a, 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 that is just Roy Thomas being completely unable to let a bit of continuity go. <laughs> he just had to. He had to say, "Yes, remember this thing happened," and you can go back and read it in this comic. It's like, no, we don't need to know who Wing was. We don't even get a picture of Wing. We don't. I didn't even notice that. He's not. He's not among the other seven soldiers. He wasn't even in that story in the in the no. original one. And, no. So I, was like, I was like, right, right, cut that line. All you're doing is adding confusion. Roy must have been paid by the word. Sometimes <laughs> I feel that way. Well, he, he was editing and and writing. I don't know. Okay, um, we, we can go through some other specific notes, but in general, big picture, what did you think about this story? I think as a, a story about Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy, it's pretty much online with every other Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy story I read, and I read the uh, the their the shorts that were part of the uh, Seven Soldiers issues, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of generic, but it's it's a typical Star Spangled Kid, and it's okay. I mean, it's nothing flashy, but I guess it does the job. I went into this story with no expectations. And taking out the framing device with Skyman talking to Nuclon and Brainwave, um, which I, I – because I hadn't been reading the story, I didn't really have the context for what he was doing. But if you just look at his story, like from once the flashback begins to once the flashback starts, I really enjoyed the story. It surprised me how much I liked it. Of the secret origin stories that I have covered up to this point in the podcast, this is one of my favorite stories. 
really. Yeah, I, I, and I can't it's, explain it. It's just it's something I, I like the setting. I like that it's in the 40s. I like the the bombast and the energy that these two guys have as they're – part of it, it, it doesn't feel like it, – it, it feels like Roy is bringing a little bit of the Marvel team up aspect to their character. Yeah, it's two heroes that don't get along, who have to work together to they, get the job done. And they hate each other for such a stupid reason that I love yes. it. Just... It's, it. This type of story is kind of like what I like to call like the Sunday afternoon type of story. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a comic that I would read on a Sunday afternoon and think, yep, that's a pretty good story. Yes. I, mean, I may not, and, and if I wasn't going to do a podcast about it, I might not ever think about it again. But it, it didn't make me want to read more about these characters necessarily. So you could say, I mean, if if he was trying to pimp the the Infinity Incorporated, he failed. And I don't really want to go read more Golden Age adventures of these guys. So oh. uh, that's a strike against it. But as just a pure done in one story of these of these budding heroes, I loved it for some reason. <laughs> I, you know, as I say, it gets the job done. It feels complete. Part of me wonders if this was just an inventory story that 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 Roy had sitting around that he just never got around to, to doing. Maybe. I, I I don't know. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of the, uh, the story that takes place in Infinity, Inc., issue number 11. It's kind of at the after the very end of the Generation Saga. It's a, a story about the reunion of the kid and uh, Stripesy after a seven soldiers reunion. Once again, Sylvester thinks back longingly about his time with, with Stripesy and it's just a one issue self-contained story with reuniting the star spangled kid and Stripesy. It's just, mm-hmm. it's a pleasantly generic Sunday afternoon comic. Yeah. I like the way the characters are introduced. Um, the, the fact that they both have the same idea. They're both in like a little mini – like a, a box or a balcony in the movie theater, and they both leap off to beat up Nazis that are well, like tearing up this movie theater. Now, it was 1941. Yeah, that's, that's what you do. Um, clearly, Pat Dugan has more success with that, and I love the way he, he announces himself. Like just from this, from this first little scene when he's leaping off the balcony just shouting out i could i i understood immediately okay this guy is cut from the same cloth as ben grimm and wildcat um he he's a brawler he's a new yorker uh, um he he's muscle and he's shouting out meanwhile sylvester who we see earlier is much more in his head you know he he's thought balloons and he's contemplation he still wants to be a man of action he rushes into the into the the scene but I think we can see what their dynamic is going to be. Yeah, I think so. But I really wish that there had been more Sylvester Pemberton and less Star Spangled Kid in the story. I like, would have liked to have known who these people are besides their costume characters. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, all we really – I mean, we just get kind of a throwaway line that he's rich, that he's a rich kid with, who borrowed his dad's car. Who apparently has no friends right. sitting alone watching a movie. I mean, this story is 16 pages and about uh, about two of those are devoted to the framing sequence with with Skyman in present time talking to the the rest of the group. I mean, if, if this could have been a fleshed out a longer story, um, maybe we could have known more about who these guys were in their civilian life before they go out adventuring. Yeah, the one thing I was thinking... 
I think it was either today or yesterday, I was thinking how much better this story might have been had it been told from the dual perspective of Pat and Sylvester. Mm. It's kind of split in half. You get we get oh we get Sylvester's perspective throughout this entire story, but I keep finding myself kind of interested what what's going on with Stripesy. Yeah. Yeah. And and then I'd like to see Stripesy throw some more insults towards the kid who's kind of a jerk during this entire story. And because he's so sort of bombastic and sort of he has that kind of large muscle bound personality, I think Stripesy does come off as the more interesting character. Um, and and given that that Sylvester's the one narrating it and he's supposedly the main character, I was like, well, I'm liking your sidekick buddy a lot more than you. Oh yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I, you, no, that's a really good point. I would have liked to see this this story split in half with a sort of dual narrator. Um, Obviously, you know, you only had half an issue to to devote to this, and mm-hmm. really, anything more might is probably too much for the Star Spangled Kid. But I think it would have fleshed it out a little bit more just to get both sides of the story. The Flash story that follows this is twenty two pages. I think he probably could have skimmed a few off of that one to devote to this, make it a little, a little bit more even up, especially since I don't think the Flash story required a whole lot of effort on Roy Thomas's part. Oh, no, it does not. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Listeners can hear me talk about that again in a little bit. Those are basically my notes for the story. It's Again, I had, I did not know much of anything about these characters when I started reading it, so I had zero expectations. Uh, as an introduction, as an introduction to the characters, I think it's it's probably perfect in that regard. Yeah, I mean, again, forgetting the framing device that's set in the Infinity Incorporated story, I liked, I I really liked the story set in the past of how these guys come together to fight Nazis. It's that classic type of. Old, old-fashioned, golden age—you know—patriotic hero, the Captain America fighting Nazis while while still on the American shore. I, I just like that type of story, so it, it had the makings for me. There were there were dumb parts, there were silly parts, but it, it worked for me. Once I put the issue away, I stopped caring about them. Like it, it, I'm not going to go out and find more of their adventures. <laughs> um, I will say that I didn't have issue number 31 of Infinity Inc. and this issue probably because I knew I was going to be talking about it, made me go out and look through about 15 uh, back issue bins. <laughs> Found it, and I was shocked to find that this entire story takes place on really the span of one page in this comic. <laughs> How much do I owe you? 50 cents a dollar? <laughs> oh, it was worth it. Okay. <laughs> it gave me the opportunity to look and find a bunch of other stuff that uh, I spent my money on, so it was well worth the effort. Any other notes on this issue in specific? This story, no, not so much. Um, just some some thoughts that you know the character eventually is killed at the end of the series. Can you tell, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because okay, spoilers for anybody who's currently reading <laughs> Infinity Inc. Um, the the thing of it is, is that in issue number fifty one, the Star Spangled Kid is killed. I'm sorry, Skyman is killed by uh, Mister Bones, a recent addition to the Infinity Inc. team. Um, by who, who is forced to touch Sylvester with his cyanide skin. Is that the same well, character who's later known as Director Bones? Mm-hmm, okay. exactly. Okay. And uh, he's kind of thrown into st- uh, the Stars Spangled Kid by Solomon Grundy. Okay. And so 
the character is killed off in issue number 51. The series is kind of is over by on issue number 53. So I, there's just a sense of Roy is just kind of ticked off. The series is being canceled, and the heck with it. I'm going to kill off this character in a matter of fact kind of way. Just kind of just offs him, and then it really never heard from again. I can't imagine there was much of a clamor for. I was thinking about the kid too, and the the. the the legacy of this character because he's an Earth 2 character and those are generally the legacy characters. I don't know if this character actually has much of a legacy. Well, I mean, there is Courtney we, we, Whitmore. Right. We talked about it a little bit, but I think the closest thing he has to a legacy was kind of repurposed or, or stolen or um, uh, what's the word? Sort of um, repurposed, I re- guess. Yeah, re- repurposed by by Starman, by that family and that legacy. Yeah, she, Courtney Whitmore was in the Stars and Stripes series by Jeff Johns. Mm-hmm. Starts off as a Star Spangled Legacy character because her stepfather is Pat Dugan, but slowly gets inserted into the Starman legacy. I don't want to to spoil the uh, the Supermate Starman podcast, but <laughs> I think it'll be a while before they get to it. But essentially, she gets the cosmic rod that the Star Spangled Kid had for a while, and mm-hmm. um, and this, and has become Star Girl. Right. So he's kind of lost his legacy. Yeah. And even that father daughter relationship between Courtney and Stripesy is more like Jack and Ted than it ever was between Sylvester and Dugan. I kind of feel sorry for for Sylvester, kind of. <laughs> now, as you pointed out to me earlier, he did make a an appearance on a television show, though. Um, yeah, he was on the yeah, episode of Smallville. Yeah, he had that connection to Courtney in that episode. Um, Looking like Jack Knight. Right, right, again, completely unrecognizable as any – he was Sylvester Pemberton in name only. Um, but he was there. He showed up, and he was killed 30 seconds later. And, um, then, and then even when they did that uh, Justice Society Returns miniseries right before the JSA series – Star Spangled Kid makes an appearance in that, but more or less that story is focuses more on Pat than it does on Sylvester. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's because, as we discovered in this story, Stripesy was a little bit more interesting. He is a little um, bit more chic. And I, I, loved- I, yeah, I do, and I, I think just like from his first from his first panel in the story, I was like, oh yeah, he reminds me of the Thing in Wildcat. That's a fun character. Oh, exactly. I do really like their dynamic. I, I I would like to see that played out more, maybe with a different set of characters, but with the the obvious leader of the team being the younger kid and the physically weaker one, and being able to boss around kind of his his chauffeur slash bodyguard, but that they still have a kind of enduring friendship. Makes you wonder how Pat handled the All Star Squadron meetings when he was relegated to the psychic table <laughs> sitting next to wing and i have a feeling that in secret in seven soldiers of victory oliver queen just gave him crap constantly i'm sure taking orders. and also be, just being ollie ollie probably made speedy do horrible demeaning things in front of them and then would just point at <laughs> at them and just say why isn't your why, why isn't your son doing that like stripesy, it's like, whoa, whoa. like, why are you taking orders from the kid? It's like this, this isn't how the relationship works. You're bigger than him. Push him around. Tell him you got a job. What did you think of the art of the story? Um, mostly, I liked it. Um, it was it, there were there were times when some of the the proportions and the anatomy were a little bit wonky. Um, 
I, I, I really like that page 15 when he kind of does the, the montage of the Seven Soldiers kind of events. It never blew me away, but it never really disappointed me. Um, I, particularly, I particularly like the bit where Star Spangled Kid takes out the two Nazis on page six. Yeah. Actually, that looks – that's probably my favorite four panels of the entire series. That's a good um, one. In the entire story. Yeah, I like that. That's a, a nice little fluid motion of him taking them out. That's, cool. that's really early in uh, Tom Grinberg's career. That's like uh, at that point he'd only done the House of Mystery and New Talent Showcase. Yeah, he ended up doing a whole lot of things. But did he have a really long-lasting tenure on any particular books? I mean, I just remember seeing his name on a lot of. He like, did a lot of stuff, but never for very long. He did yeah. Master of Kung Fu for Marvel Comics Presents back in the 80s. He did a run of Firestorm. Yeah, I remember he did that. He, I mean, he did some Batman books. I think he did one of the, one of the Rachel Ghoul stories. Yeah, Bride of the Demon. Bride of the Demon, yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe the longest run he had was on Silver Surfer mm. back in issue 101 through 116. Looking at the way he draws... Star Spangled Kid and his how like lean and sleek he is and like, his proportions. I can see him looking doing a really good Silver Surfer. Yeah, I think I know that I've read them. I just can't bring them up in my mind because yeah. I've read so many comics in my lifetime. Yeah. <sighs> On the last page of the story, um, the second to last panel, when there's that group shot of as Lyda is coming in and basically telling everybody what's up. The woman standing directly next to Skyman, I was having a horrible time trying to figure out who that was. I kept thinking it was Batgirl. It took me a while to figure out. It's it's the Yolanda Montez mm-hmm. Wildcat. Like I, I kept thinking, I was like, is that Batgirl? And why does it look like she has two black eyes? So <laughs> <laughs> remarkable lack of female characters in this story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, it's the Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy, but right. it's. It's really lacking anybody else. Until that last bit, I don't think any women have any lines of dialogue until Lyda shows up. Anyway, uh, overall, I mean, I, I thought it was a fun story. It, it, served, it served a purpose in that it entertained me. Um, yeah. I, I felt like it was a worthwhile story. Oh, yeah. I mean, I read this back in the day. It was, in fact, it was my second issue of this run of Secret Origins that I ever bought. Hmm. Okay. Well, thinking about either either of this character's teams, like the Seven Soldiers or Infinity Inc., um, uh, are there any sort of recommended readings that you have, any particular runs of these books? And they don't have to be noteworthy for these characters, but is there a good run of Infinity Inc. that you would recommend? Well, with Infinity Inc., of course, the, the gold standard for them is issues 1 through 10. The Generation Saga, because mm-hmm. it's Roy Thomas at really his best with this type of story, and with that, Jerry, the extraordinary Ordway, is on art, so that's worth getting. Unfortunately, only half of the story has been collected. I noticed that, because I, I was actually shopping around, and I saw that like the first four issues are collected along with the issues of like All-Star Squadron, Star Squadron. That, kind of, that kind of led up to the the book that sort of like, almost like their prelude to infinity Inc. And they were going to put out a second uh, volume of it, but DC in their infinite wisdom decided to cancel it. <laughs> I'm surprised it didn't get a showcase or anything. They could have, had I, they might have thought about doing it, but it, but that was right around the same time that uh, the suicide squad was supposed to have a, a showcase presents and they never got that. Mm-hmm. 
But if you want a showcase presents the All-Star Squadron, uh, I'm sorry, the the All-Star Comics with the return of uh, the Justice Society during the 70s, that's a good chunk of stories. And the Star-Spangled Kid does play a, a prominent role throughout that entire run. If you have a few bucks to spend, the the archive edition of the Seven Soldiers of Victory, uh, I tentatively recommend that. <laughs> it is a tough read for a number of different reasons, um, most of which being that time was not particularly politically correct, particularly in the Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy stories are probably the least offensive of the bunch. Um, with the Crimson Avenger being the worst. I, I was, can imagine for that time period, having the, the Chinese sidekick probably is a bit harder to read. It was a tough read. And, and also, if you're interested in a Star-Spangled Kid, maybe you should get the Stars and Stripes by Jeff Johns and read the modern, ver- the modern incarnation of this character. Yeah, that's a good one and, too. And it's Jeff Johns, probably at the period where I like him the most. He hasn't He's, he's a brand new writer at that point. He hasn't developed all of the ticks that he has now. There's a lot to be said for for artists and writers when they're working from hunger. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, I think I think Jeff Johns's best work was some of his earlier work. That's uh, that's definitely how I feel about most comic writers. You can yeah. once they start to get comfortable, they don't seem to be taking as many risks. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and that's that's yeah, that's not just true of writers. That's true of I think of a lot of creative people. Yeah, definitely. That when you think of the the adversity and the the struggle that it takes them, it usually produces a lot of great work. And I think the new Fifty Two is seeing a different chapter of Jeff Johns's career. That is, I don't know. It, it feels much more in keeping with the the DC platform along across the board, which is much more corporatized and mm-hmm. bloodless. Um, which isn't to say the content isn't gory, but I mean. <laughs> the blood going to the right creative parts. Oh, definitely. But, um, Greg, was there anything else that you wanted to mention about this story? Um, I think that's about it. I think we've touched on... Oh, one other thing that I found interesting during my... just looking around on the internet about the Star-Spangled Kid. Apparently, Roy regrets killing this character. <laughs> okay. And it, I don't know necessarily the context, but I found... This this bit on I can't even remember which website because they started to blur together after a while, but essentially it was he wanted to shake up the book because it was on its way out, and he said that the death was kind of out of character for him, and that he probably wouldn't do it again, and he regretted it, especially since DC never brought the character back. Well, the way you described it does seem kind of like a lazy way to kill the character off. Yeah, it, it, it does feel spiteful. Yeah, like, or petty, yeah. And and then this person said that Roy mentioned that it was always his intention to bring Skyman back and that it was an imposter that was killed. <laughs> I don't know when Roy said this. I don't know if Roy said this after he realized that there was a different character using that name that was kind of popular and he was kind of regretful that he didn't create that character. Mm. I always get that impression that he has very little time for modern versions of any of the the earth two characters so i'm of two minds of that and one one hand i have to say roy you don't own them you do kind of have to get out of the way um but at the same time i i am not entirely crazy about the modern incarnations of these characters either 
Well, you know, I don't know if he was particularly a fan of, say, the Jack Knight Starman and all okay. that. So I don't know what he I, – obviously, I he probably doesn't like what occurred in the Earth 2 book, one to the New 52 banner. But he wasn't too crazy about anybody touching those characters. And I have to say, Roy Thomas's run on Earth 2 characters was probably my favorite thing about the DC Comics back in the day. I mean, I was – Earth 2 was it for me in terms of anything could happen, mm-hmm. particularly in the modern era. Superman could get married. Uh, Batman and Catwoman could have the Huntress. Characters could die. That type of thing really appealed to me. And, but at the same time, the way that he would get into the minutia and tie everything together, I guess it was a, it was great when I was younger and eager to learn all this stuff, but at a certain point, it just gets tedious on a reread. I think the the word incestuous is way too strong, but that's sometimes how I feel. Like he has to interweave everything, and and he doesn't give it a chance to breathe and kind of yeah. live on its own. And that's to me that kind of screams control freak. Um, which well, he was. He was given his sandbox and, and, and he maintained he had, it. He had also been editor-in-chief across the street a couple years before that. So that, There's that too. So. And he did – I think did a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. And, and there's that point where DC just broke his heart. Yeah. And I've been trying to determine exactly when that point is where, DC, where, where he just decided, oh, DC is not for me anymore. I, I'm thinking he probably had a lot of behind-the-scenes problems with Crisis on Infinite Earths. I'd love to see the memos. Yeah, yeah. He, he, I, I would like to see his talks with Marv Wolfman and with uh, with Levitz and Jeanette Kahn and Dick Giordano. Um, but we'll see. Um, <laughs> but really, that's about all that I had for this character. Uh, as I said, I don't know if anybody ever really likes Star Spangled Kid. I mean, as far as I'm able to determine. He only appeared in one JLA JSA crossover, and then there are periods of time in which, like, he disappears, doesn't show up in a comic book for two or three years before the he gets reintroduced into uh, into Infinity Inc. Hmm. It's just kind of weird that they would just let him just languish. All right, well, perhaps nobody loves this character, but I at least thank you for uh, for gracing this show and and helping me talk about him on this episode. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm um, really glad you invited me. I can be found at Giarujo1, G-A-R-A-U-J-O-1 on Twitter. Well, thank you very much, Greg, one more time for being part of this. Um, well, thank I had you. a blast, and I look forward to having you on in a future episode. Oh, please. I, I get whatever ones, particularly these type of characters, they're my bread and butter. Uh, don't go away, listeners, because after this short break, we'll be back with the story of Jay Garrick, the Golden Age Flash. Guys, we finally developed our time machine. Should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built? Or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school? Or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed. Yeah! The Comic Book Time Machine. A journey back in time to explore comic books. Good and bad. Whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago. Join our journey at comicbooktimemachine.com.
All right, listeners, I'm back, you're back, and my guest is back, making his third appearance on the Secret Origins podcast. It's my favorite French-Canadian, Siskoid. Thanks for coming back, man. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm good. Um, how many French-Canadians do you know? Um, I'm, I'm just trying to see where I fit in the ranking. Two. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, second person. Oh, he sucks. I hate him so much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Siskoid and I are talking about the original Scarlet Speedster, Jay Garrick, also known as the Golden Age Flash. Now, Siskoid, I have been thinking about this all day, and I have no idea where or when I first discovered this version of the Flash. Do you? Do you remember how you came to know this character? I don't have a specific memory, so it's probably just the same way I met all the Golden Age characters, All-Star Squadron, mm-hmm. uh, Secret Origins itself, um, you know, early JSA stuff. I never read those Justice League, Justice Society uh, team-ups until much later. So it's not yeah. there. It's not The Flash of Two Worlds. It's not that. I mean, those are all too early for me, and then I, I would have read them in reprints much later. Uh, so it's, it's got to be All-Star Squadron again. But if you're asking me when I first knew the character, mm-hmm. per se, then, you know, he's, he's always been just the speedster in the Golden Age or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I first knew the character, I'd say, in Mark Wade's run on, on Flash, uh-huh. the Wally West series, where Mark Wade brought in all those other speedsters as mentor figures, as mentorees, or, um, you know, so he, he used, used all of them. He used the whole history of... DC's Super Speedsters, and that's where I guess that's where Jay Gary became my favorite Flash. Mm, okay, as, as a mentor to Wally, as the you know, as the older generation Flash, and uh, he's always resonated with me as that I guess father figure. Okay, what do you think of the cover to Secret Origins issue nine? I've already talked about it with Greg, but what is your take on this cover? It's terrible. <laughs> It's so awful. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's a consensus. That's three, that's, a consensus. That's, that's three people who look at this cover and go, eh. Ugh, the yellow background and then the giant star, uh, sky man in the background, all in purple. Uh, it's just the Flash is at least the foreground figure, but he's low on the page. He's under, the, under half of the page. Uh, it's, it's um, what, what is this? Uh, Tom Greinberg did this? Eh. It just looks like a bad paste-up of the various characters the issue is going to feature. And it gives really the star moment to Skyman, which is a terrible version of the (laughs) Star-Spangled Kid. So, yeah, no, I I don't think it's very good. Okay, so you pretty much mirrored our thoughts almost exactly. Um, I, I at least think Flash looks the best in this cover. Sure, but his, his helmet is is awful. Yeah, it's it's not it's not dishy enough. It's too much like a, a soldier's helmet. Right. I, yeah, but yeah, no, he it, looks better than the others. Right. Like the positioning, the the rendition, it's not bad. If he had been bigger, if it had been much more of him in the forefront, I would have appreciated that. But yeah, okay, that I think that's all three of us not impressed by this cover. Let's see if the art inside is any better, and the story for that matter. Are you ready to tell us the secret origin of the Golden Age Flash? Sure, that's the title, and it's written by Roy Thomas, penciled by George Tusca. The inker is Jerry Aserno, with colors by Carl Gafford, letters by David Cody Weiss, and Bob Greenberger acting as coordinating editor. But of course, Roy Thomas is his own creative editor, suckers. 
So I'm going to actually start with the way the narration works uh, because it takes, uh, it takes a caption from Gardner Fox himself in Flash Comics number one, January 1940, okay. where he introduced the character. Faster than the streak of the lightning in the sky, swifter than the speed of light itself, fleeter than the rapidity of thought is the Flash, reincarnation of the winged Mercury. His speed is the dismay of scientists, the joy of the oppressed, and the open-mouthed wonder of the multitudes. So wrote the co-creator of The Fastest Man Alive nearly five decades ago, and neither time nor perspective has altered the impact of his words. And now the story as transcribed from the wire recordings made by Jonathan Law, alias Tarantula, in April of 1942 for possible post-war use in Jay Garrick's own words. Jay Garrick was just an obscure science student at Midwestern University and the slowest player on the football team, nicknamed Leadfoot. Trying to get the attentions of Joan Williams, but not getting anywhere for lack of ambition when fate intervened. Frustrated and tired after a long night of analyzing a particular kind of hard water, Jay dropped the hard water while on a cigarette break, believe it or not, and several other chemicals while trying to avoid the fumes. When they found him, he'd been inhaling that unknown cocktail for hours. He would spend the next two weeks in a coma and one more recuperating. He felt better one morning when he saw Joan out the window and raced at amazing speed to meet her. To impress her further, he went to get a book out of the library for her, Gone with the Wind, in two seconds flat. The gases had clearly given him powers, and he shared his secret only with Joan. She encouraged him to play in the next football game, and he got his chance after many first stringers were injured. And his speed made him score the winning touchdown. Now, he promptly quit the team, feeling his advantage was unfair, and that he should use his powers for something more worthwhile. After graduation, Jay and Joan go their separate ways, and we'll keep the rest of the story for, for later. Greg Arujo, who covered the, uh, the Skyman slash Star Spangled Kid origin with me earlier in this episode, um, he, he, made a, he had a line that Jay Garrick is probably notable for being the only superhero to get his powers by taking a smoking break. <laughs> It could be. And this is in the original story. I read the original Flash comic story, and, and this happens. He takes a smoke, and then uh, somehow, you know, he's not being careful, and he drops, the, um, he drops his stuff on the floor. Mm-hmm. In both stories, in this, because the secret origin here is almost plot for plot point the same as the, the actual Golden Age story. There are a few little differences, but mostly it's, you know, the same interactions with Joan, the same kind of conversations. Uh, Roy Thomas adds a little more detail, omits something, some things, but it's very much the same thing. So the, it's, it's the same cigarette break, and it's the same sort of guilt from him saying, well, uh, I know I'm on a sports team and I shouldn't, but... Was that line in the original? Yes, Okay, that's in the original as well. So I was the, I was thinking that was more of a contemporary. Hey, kids, you shouldn't smoke, but you know, do as we say, not as we do. But we're going to show our hero smoking. Yeah, no, he does that. In um, he has the same thought in the Golden Age story, in the real story. Okay, <laughs> so at least he knows he's doing badly. But <laughs> I mean, he has cigarettes on him. I mean, he's a smoker, <laughs> right. occasional smoker, but he's a smoker, uh, which is kind of ironic that he'll become, you know. A, a racing Somebody kind of hero, a running hero. Probably had a lot of good uh, cardio strength. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and he probably burns up. You know, he burns out the nicotine mm-hmm. at super speeds. Obviously, uh, what do you think of George Tuska's art? Because uh, I know he was a kind of a sore point for the uh, Firestorm Secret Origin. Yeah, he was, and Shag and I talked about him a lot. But I think the consensus we both came to, or at least I, I particular thought, was Tuska excelled in a lot of the quiet character moments of that story, not the action. And I thought that when he wasn't doing superhero stuff, especially at, at this point in his career, when he wasn't drawing superheroes, he shined a lot brighter. And I think the first half of this story, with the exception of a few points when Flash is running... It feels like an old-fashioned romance comic, and I like it. I actually, I really like the way his style kind of fits the mood of this story before Jay gets his powers, before there's the accident. Um, even during the football game, uh, on page six, when you've got that bottom left panel of Joan and the two other women, those are beautiful-looking women. It's a nice kind of classical shot. I like the way he draws the coach. I like the way he draws... Jay in his uh, football uniform. The art by Tuska, I think, feels much better in this first half of the story when it's less action oriented. Um, what do you think? Although, although the action kind of works as well, the, the football action works. Yeah, I, think, I, I agree. Yeah, the crime fighting action, well, we'll see, but the, the football action works quite well. I think he's, you know, uh, I think the inker has a lot to do with it. Um, Probably. Yeah, Jerry Asserno has a thicker line, which mm-hmm. matches the Golden Age material a lot better. Mm-hmm. I think the faces look more iconic, for a, lack of a better word, more a little more cartoony. Uh, yeah, so, I, I think you're right, a little bit more cartoony. There are times in the story where it's not, it's not a necessarily a straight comparison, but it kind of reminded me of some of Joe Staten or Mike Parabek's kind of more cartoony style. Right. Um, Parabek is a good analogy here for uh, someone who would be working almost at the same time uh, because it's got that very, you know, a thick, clean line, mm-hmm. uh, simple features, but still expressive. So I like it. I couldn't really li- – I don't like the uh, the Firestorm issue, which is a little more scratchier. Mm-hmm. You know. But uh, this I do like, and I think even the action bits are, are pretty good. Um, and, and, of course, the Flash stories in the Golden Age, I mean, all the ones I've ever seen. I, I can't say that I've, I've read them all. Obviously, there are over 200, as we'll see. Mm-hmm. But the art is nothing to write home about. Even though, uh, according to the um, Roy Thomas's text page in this issue, uh, even though Carmine Infantino and Joe Kubert eventually worked on the strip, I haven't seen those particular stories specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everything I've seen was, yeah, it, I, I'd call it primitive. Okay. You know, it, it looked like something that was made by the guys who were left over after the better guys went off to war. That's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course. It had also it had a kind of art style, a house style, mm-hmm. uh, all throughout. So even later artists kind of mimicked the way it was it was done previously. So the art here is has that same kind of clean, cartoony look, but of course more realistic. Where and even though he's, he's a super speedster who can do a lot of super speed tricks, the Golden Age comics I've seen weren't very good at showing that. Mm-hmm. Usually they would black out his figure while he was running. So it's just speed lines and a sort of a character you can't quite make out. It was that kind of look. 
uh, and not much else. So in that, in that sense, the issue we're looking at now doesn't differ from the Golden Age material too much. It's not like they're reinventing uh, how the Flash looked. Right. Uh, so much as just bringing him into the later 20th century. Uh, did you notice the inside jokes? Probably not. Which ones are you referring to? Well, where I, and then I, I noticed this and then I reread the whole thing all over again. Uh, to see if there were more, and there were. And they're mostly at the front of the story, so I might as well talk about it now. But uh, look at page five, third panel, where he's running out of the hospital. And he's, you know, there's brewing up a storm. There's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Papers all, yeah, yeah. The, the nurse's line. I did catch that. Yeah, where he said, where the guy says, huh, did, you, did somebody just run through here? And says, are you kidding? Nobody moves that fast. Oh, Johnny, quick. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let that draft blow away these hospital reports. So he's, Roy Thomas is, you know, name checking Johnny Quick, another super speed character from the Golden Age. Yeah. He, he does this throughout and usually with characters uh, who are not DCs, who are now public characters, public domain. So. Well, on page one, he refers to a character, a quality character, because he refers to himself, Flash, as a Quicksilver. So mm-hmm. Quicksilver was the original name of Max Mercury, as we know him now in the DC Universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on page five, there's that Johnny Quick joke. Later, Joan refers to him as um, a human meteor, mm-hmm. and he, uh, that was a Centaur Comics character with uh, super speed. That's on page six. On page seven, Joan's friend mentions a cyclone. Uh, would have been able. Uh, w- um, let me see. Uh, Jones' friend mentions a cyclone would have to pick him up for him to do well in the game. Uh, and cyclone is a golden age character as well, a public domain golden age character. And then one of Jay's teammates says, "Well, well, look who thinks he's a tornado, Tom." <laughs> tornado Tom is also a super speed character who first appeared in Cyclone Comics number one. Uh, which was um, by uh, published by one of those very small publishing groups, Bill Barra Publishing. Never heard of them. Uh, that's uh, public domain now. The uh, the opposing team's player, or anyway, the the opposing team has a player called Dash Dixon. Mm-hmm. That's from Hillman's uh, publications, Miracle Comics number one. On page eight, he's moving like a blue streak, <laughs> even though his uniform is red and orange. So that's kind of odd because it's a reference to Hollyoaks uh, Crash Comics. Uh, and then on page 12, uh, which is uh, later in the story, uh, but let's mention it now, he's faster than a speeding bullet because, of course, Superman has super speed. And so there's a reference to Superman there. And there are more modern speedsters kind of name-checked throughout, Whirlwind, Cannonball, Speed Demon. Uh, they're all, all these words are mentioned, and sometimes you say, why... Why choose that word? That's an odd word to use right. or you, an odd phrase to put together. It's because it's meant to be that joke. <laughs> I didn't catch nearly that many of them. I, did catch, I caught the Johnny Quick one and the Dash Dixon one. Um, but, it, like, yeah, my, my eyes just kind of scanned over the words like uh, Quicksilver and Mercury and Cyclone. I was like, okay, but, yeah, no, thank you for that brief little lesson because – I would not have thought of any of those characters. And I never, I've never seen this before. I mean, you know, I just noticed now because I was looking at the issue so intently mm-hmm. uh, and had, you know, the internet at my beck and, co- at my beck and call. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but otherwise, you know, the gun with the wind is a joke. Right, right. But the, the, those others are just Roy Thomas putting in minutia mm-hmm. uh, that only he knows he's done. 
at this point. I doubt anyone else would have read this this way back in the 80s. <laughs> okay, should we talk about Joan now or should we wait until the end of the story? Uh, what do you think? Um, probably wait till the end of the story. Okay. Let me see. Let me speak this up. After graduation, right, Jay and Joan go their separate ways. So she, sa- she, she goes to Washington to work for her father, Major Williams. He goes to an assistant professor job in Philadelphia. There, inspired by the Sandman and the Crimson, oh, who were making the news at the time, he puts on a costume and starts fighting crime. But he isn't called the Flash yet. One day, while Jay is playing tennis with himself, uh, the only possible opponent, Joan runs up to him in tears. Her father's been kidnapped by the faultless four, ruthless foreign scientists who want the secret of his bomb site so they can sell it to the highest bidder. Within seconds of their reunion, Jay saves her from an assassin's bullet. That assassin, Duriel, drives off thinking she's dead and is later shocked to find her alive at the Williams house while trying to get a hold of her body so he could prove it to the major, who just won't be broken otherwise, despite the use of a mirrored room designed to sap his will. Sensing something is up, Jay puts on his uniform and races after the man back to the four's hideout, where he defeats them and rescues Major Williams. There, someone says he ran past like a flash, and so to hide his identity from Joan's dad, he introduces himself that way, as the Flash. As father and daughter are reunited, Jay races from the scene before he's recognized, disappointed that the faultless four have escaped. But he runs across them again when Duriel makes a strafing run at a public beach with a fighter plane. The idea is to cause a panic while they kidnap Joan and get at her father that way. Well, Jay's on that beach and he's catching all the bullets. He follows the plane back to the four's new HQ, which is in Keystone City. To get at the Flash, the Frenchman of the villainous group, Sieur Satan, or Sieur Satan probably, since he's French, sends a few zillion volts of electricity into the room, killing his three partners, but the Flash quickly jumps onto a wooden table and is safe. The Flash races after Sieur Satan, whose car eventually takes a tumble down a cliff and explodes. But as Jay recounts, the villain only cheated death and would return a year hence. In epilogue, we learn how the Flash joined the Justice Society of America and was elected its first chairman, and how he hopes to marry Joan one day and leave a legacy of speedsters called the Flash. Hindsight being 2020, we know he achieved both ambitions. And so ends the story. How much of this second half of the story is from Flash Comics number one? All of it. All of it? Okay. All of it, although... Roy Thomas removes certain certain bits. So, for example, in the, the original story, it actually makes more sense for Jay to be at the beach because he goes back to the uh, villain's lair uh, in between events and uh, overhears them planning this strafing run mm-hmm. on the beach. So he knows and he wants to catch them in the act of attempted murder uh, instead of just catching them for the kidnapping. So he lets them do it, and then he's at the beach because he knew they'd be there. In The Secret Origins here, there's no such justification. He's just moping on that beach for no reason, <laughs> and then they decide to attack that beach. So <laughs> it's strange that Roy Thomas would, <laughs> would actually make that choice. That but, moment does kind of jump out. So why is he on the beach all of a sudden? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, but that's one of the... Small differences in the stories are the other differences are like things like um, when he's on his when he's in a coma. There's a scientist who actually knows 
this is going to happen to him uh, because as <laughs> this is the quote science knows that hard water makes a person act more much quicker than ordinary science knows this <laughs> so, so that he'd become some kind of uh, super speed person uh, probably they don't realize you know the extent of it but there's that bit in the golden age story so the golden story is very full it's one of those you know a lot of panels per page a lot of things happen uh and it's it almost feels like uh two stories are being told and he even has that whole thing where uh, you know the first time he becomes a superhero to fight racketeers he reads about in the newspaper that's in there it's the same newspaper headline it's so there's you know, Roy Thomas is really taking that story and kind of modernizing it, maybe putting a little more detail into it, small details like, you know, what book he took out of the library, things like that. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, point for point, it's the same plot. Your mention of the scientist knowing about hard water uh, reminded me of a note that I had for the first section that I forgot to bring up. Um, going all the way back to the splash page, on page one. And the original quote uh, from Gardner Fox, uh, when he's talking fleeter than the rapidity of thought, is the flash reincarnation of the winged Mercury. His speed is the dismay of scientists, the joy (laughs) of the oppressed, and the open-mouthed wonder of the multitudes. Now, if you think about the parallel construction of that sentence and and how it is set up... When you think about the joy of the oppressed, the, the counter to that would be the dismay of scientists. What kind of like villainous <laughs> depiction does he have as scientist? That's like you would say the dismay of criminals or the dismay of wrongdoers. I think it's meant it's meant to be that scientists, you know, uh, can't explain <laughs> how we I, I get how that. he defies physics, but but also uh, given that the vi- that the bad guys in the story, the faultless four, which is an all-time horrible name for a group. Even the Flash mentions it that it's like they're 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 not very aptly named. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, I just that yeah that thing called the dismay of scientists and the joy of the oppressed. It's like okay, the the opposites of that are not lining up unless you really really hate scientists. That blurb is quite a mouthful. I mean, it's oh, it was yeah. hard to read, and it's ju- not just because English is my second language. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very dense. Uh, it's verbose and you know uh, hyperbolic. But uh, there you have it. That's a, a lot of the the flavor of the golden age yeah. uh, was in that kind of that kind of thing. The other thing I miss from the original story, as it was originally told, is a small bit where uh, Jay Garrick during the football play. Mm-hmm runs up to visit Joan. So there's a moment where he's so fast, uh, he can go and chat up Joan during the play while the ball is in the air or something. Oh, shh. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's, uh, so that's not in the story here, which I kind of miss it. I, I thought it was like that, that was cute, and it showed how uh, these two characters were basically teenagers mm-hmm. at the start of the story. They're, they're in col- their college age, right. but um, you know, were as they themselves... Uh, tell it here as um, Jay tells it in the bookend. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were immature. They were they were kids at this point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because Joan is. I mean, Joan's pretty fixated on him becoming a football hero. She's not going to go out with him if he's not a football hero. Is what I get from the uh, from so, the love story. So my impression of Joan is that she's awful by this story. Like <laughs> she's a hard character to like in this story. 
She's basically she's like, oh yeah, I know I made a date with you, but I dumped you so that I can go out with a guy who's more popular and more athletic and pretty much better at everything than you. She's calling him a loser and going out with him. And then as soon as she finds out that he's really fast and really good at running, she's like, you need to capitalize on this. You need to become a star so I can have a good boyfriend, a popular boyfriend. It's like, yep, she, that's that's what she is. You're, she's you're Lucy, she's Lucy we, Lane. Yeah, she, you're all she's the girls Lucy we Lane. hated in school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, um, you know, she, she's she's obviously attracted to him, but, but yeah, but her her main point in this is that, uh, and it's the same in the Golden Age story. I mean, th- there's no difference here. She she sees he has potential to become more than he is. Right now, he's an obscure, or uh, in the original story, he's just unknown mm-hmm. science student. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means he's not really performing. Uh, he's been working on this, on analyzing the same chemical for three years. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not going well. Right. It's, he's not really applying himself. Um, so on, on, on academic, he's not doing very well. And the sports, he's in the he's in the team, but uh, he only goes in if other players are injured. He's on the like the third lineup or whatever, so he's not doing well there either. But he could. Mm-hmm. She she sees that in him. And actually, that that is as much as I just <laughs> complained about her and thought <laughs> that like I have I have issues with her character. I really I loved the fact that it's clear she's not dumb. She's not an idiot. She's opportunistic, and she's, to a degree, very self-serving, but she's not an idiot, and she's not naive. And I think that really sets her apart from the type of love interests we would see more so in the Silver Age, really. Yeah, I think she's an interesting character in that, well, I mean, she's a college girl, obviously. She's going to college. Right. She's going to work for her for her father, but that's he's, uh, he's, he's in the military, they're not just... Hopefully, they're not. It's not just nepotism at work. Um, she has. He's working on a science project or an engineering project called the bomb site. S i g h t. It was an atom. What was it in the original story? It was a little bit uh, more um, science fictiony. It was an atomic something or other. Uh, and um, where did I put it here? Atomic bombarder. That's what it was called. Okay. It's, they probably meant some kind of weapon. That sounds like a fusion reactor. Yeah, or possibly a um, you know, particle accelerator. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. Who knows? But um, so that, that's what. So she has a, a mind for science and engineering. Possibly, hopefully, she's not just a secretary in this uh, in this office mm-hmm. uh, where she works for her father. So she she is a, a smart person, but she's also the reason why Jay Garrick makes something of himself mm-hmm. uh, because it's after that encounter that he decides to. Um, do an all-nighter to you know to get at the source of his problem in the lab, mm-hmm. and because he's there so late, uh, that's where when he takes a smoke break in the lab. Um, <laughs> well, if I work on a campus and they lock the doors after a certain time, so it's probably the same here. So if he walked out to take a smoke, no story. He can't get back in. He doesn't knock over any chemicals. So she's driving him to do better in both fields, possibly. You know, if I can't uh, impress her with the football, maybe I can impress her with the academics. Um, And pushing him to do that and then to win the football game. And then that makes him realize that he's 
uh, meant to do something more with it, that he has a responsibility that goes far beyond sports. Uh, that all drives him to eventually you know, become a superhero. Mm-hmm. And the, the kind of lazy bones uh, student that we meet in the first part, uh, who has, you know, doesn't have much ambition, is at the end chairman of the Justice Society. Mm-hmm. So at some point, and we know that he married Joan and that Joan was an important character in his life uh, until the end. Um, that means something. I mean, she's, she's the great woman behind the great man. And it's, it's even if we think a, she's kind of a jerk, yeah. but I mean it is sort of a, a, a classic, a classic story of like how, why, why an underdog would suddenly like succeed and do reach you know beyond his means and uh, achieve greatness. It's just to meet somebody he's attracted to. It's of course. It's it's just to get the girl. <laughs> and I sure. I do like that. As soon as he gets his super speed, as soon as he wakes up, he's like, hey, I'm I'm really fast. The first thing he does is go find her. It's like it's it's not like the 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 Silver Age story. It's like oh, I've got these powers. I have to, or even you know, like this the Superman trope of I have these powers. I need to keep it from my love interest to keep her safe. It's yeah, like, no, nope. he, he tells her. He runs right out there. He's like, look what I can do. Yeah, but that's something that's um, in the in the Silver Age, uh, almost nobody ever fesses up about their powers. There's mm-hmm. like uh, elongated man. That's about it. Yeah. But in the Golden Age, I maybe that was you know. There was no real formula, and they avoided it here. So Joan always knew mm-hmm. that he had these powers, and he were basically keeping it from her father or other characters. But she was always in on it. She was the sidekick. So that's interesting to me, for sure. And I think that's kind of an omission where we never really find out what's going through his mind when he discovers his powers. He sees Joan out the window. He runs out, and he does a few tricks, mm-hmm. and he's got the powers. It's like... She reacts, but he never actually reacted on tape. If if we take this to be the uh, tarantula's tape, John mm-hmm. Law's tape, where he's collecting these um, go- these secret origins for um, you know some kind of a, a book deal later. <laughs> well, my no prize explanation for that was if this is Jay's own account, maybe it was something that he never thought about. Because it was something that was just so ingrained in him, like it was, it was, it was an experience that was too close to him. He couldn't perceive that other people wouldn't know what he was thinking and feeling and that that sensation. And the original story, the, the there there isn't that either, of course. But mm-hmm. uh, they do say that he would be thinking faster. So mm-hmm. that's an element that we don't we don't always explore with our super speed characters. Um, more recently, we do, but um, earlier, you know, just it's about running fast. Right. But they do say specifically that we'd be thinking fast. So probably, you know, he just thought about it between panels, and mm-hmm. we never noticed. Uh, and I guess John Law is not asking questions during this interview, right? It's because a if I were, just, yeah. yeah, if I were John Law, I'd probably have asked, "Dude, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what what did you think? <laughs> what went through your mind?" But um, it's it's not it's not told here. What do you think of that framing uh, about that frame, that framing tale though? The idea that you know the golden age characters are being recorded and as uh, a way to tell the story. I, I like that idea. I didn't have much of a background for it because I haven't read other issues of All Star Squadron where they were telling their story to John. La- or was that set up in the Starman story? Was, uh, was Starman telling his story to? I'd have to, to the check. Tarantula in that story. I. 
I, I don't remember how that went, but I know that my first issue of All Star Squadron before I went back and got the, the load of them mm-hmm. was uh, the Doctor Fate origin. Okay. From number forty-seven, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's when I really went went for the concept, but um, that, that story's table. not like that. I had that Starman story in the, on the table, and I put it away. But anyway, so I I wasn't really familiar with that that uh, that the setup for this framing device, um, but it does kind of connect to what I mentioned when we talked about the Sandman was when Roy Thomas wrote the origin for Starman in All Star Squadron Forty One. He also wrote origin stories for Liberty Bell and this story of the Flash, and they were just intended to be random filler issues. They were inventory stories to be put to be released at some other occasion. And the Liberty Bell eventually got play, published in All Star, but this Flash story he decided to just repurpose that when he got the Secret Origins book. So it, it makes sense that there would have been probably pages, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one at the front where. Um, the Flash gets together with the Tarantula or that kind of thing where, you know, just add a couple panels and suddenly it's an All-Star Squadron story because Tarantula is also in it. Right. That makes sense. Then again, Uh, I wonder, it also would have been equally easy to just take out that frame part, that little, it's basically one panel. I mean, you still could have had Jay Garrick as the narrator, but you wouldn't have had to include the mention of John Law. So I wonder if maybe if the art on this was being done before they decided to put it in Secret Origins. But it works as a um, you know a reason for Jay Garrick to tell the story in his own words. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have a first-person narrator, which is always more modern than uh, omniscient. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that works well for you know Roy Thomas likes to be dense and verbose, but if he's talking in, if he's speaking with a character's voice, and that's easier to take. Um, seems to make more sense, so I, I like that. Uh, he doesn't put as much history in this one as he did in uh, the other uh, stories. I've, I've, um, you've, you've let me cover the Crimson Avenger and Sandman, which were very much, you know, the character in history. Uh, so here, history is there, but it's not uh, overplayed. It's not what the story is really about. It's really more about Jay Garrick, not about the history he lived through. Although there are mentions of war brewing and um, the Sieur Satan there, Sieur Satan, the most iconic looking of the villains in the in the four, uh, is said to be an intimate of Pierre Laval. <laughs> uh, I had to look that up. He um, uh, worked with the um, Vichy regime, which was the um, when the Nazis took over France. Mm-hmm. So he was a collaborator. So that's a way to make him villainous, although... In the story, this is way too early for for him to have that connection. So I'm not sure if I mean it's kind of character assassination mm-hmm. uh, from Roy Thomas there. But um, uh, so you know, this guy worked with the Nazis and he was friends with a supervillain. Yeah. So you know, that makes sense, I suppose. Um, there are little things I, I like as Sir Satan, or I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but Sir Satan is said to, reach, to to have survived. The um, the car crash, and he would later return. So I was like, oh, you know, where? And uh, well, it was in All Star Squadron Annual Number Three. So it's it was a retcon. Yeah, yeah. Roy uh, Roy did, he, he didn't appear twice in the Golden Age. Okay, that's what I was it, thinking. Yeah. In fact, in the Golden Age, the story ends with the car crash, but it's got this just awful panel of the car doesn't explode. It just become if it flattens out like a pancake. <laughs> That's what it looks like. 
it's it's very terrible art but the the car is just flat on the ground and the villain is going to kind of popping out out of the door uh so he's also kind of flat <laughs> so they've got this cartoon death yeah. So you see a body, and when you see a body, the character won't return. But well, even, uh, even the Golden Age, they didn't recycle a whole lot of villains unless no. they were really special. And usually they were, you know. And this guy has a um, cool name, but right. I mean, he's just he's just another mad scientist type, right. um, you know, another mastermind, which Daradama doesn't. The story also tells us that Keystone City is near Philadelphia, which makes. Logical sense because Pennsylvania is the Keystone State. Ah, um, and actually, yeah, there was a there for a long time. Like I, I think in certain before maybe it was the role playing game that kind of established the the geography of where all these cities are, and they well, placed Keystone and Central City in the Midwest. Yeah, but I went, think for a time the popular thought was I think for a time the popular thought was Keystone was basically a surrogate Philadelphia. That makes sense. I I didn't know. Um, yeah. and obviously, not being American, I don't know. I don't necessarily know all the um, state nicknames. Um, only a few, but the um, the placement was because after a flash of two worlds, when uh, the, the the two flashes meet, um, eventually, and this may actually be something that's in Secret Origins. There's a Secret Origin with the two flashes meeting later on, number forty-eight or number fifty, even. It's in um, fifty. The Flash of Two Worlds yeah. retold in issue fifty, the last one. And that story kind of sets up the two cities as being, you know, across the river from one another, or, uh, being in the same space somehow, um, so that they can coexist, so that the, the Flash of Two Worlds story can, can happen even though there are no parallel worlds. I right. guess that's the, the point of that, of that story. So that's probably where the, the town got shifted, mm-hmm. yeah, to be closer right. to Central City. Uh, or else Central City be what in Kentucky or something. <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't be so central. Right, right. Kind of thing. Um, so that's probably the, the reason for it. But it's interesting here that, you know, it's – Roy Thomas actually tells us where where it is. And I'm always fascinated by DC Comics geography. <laughs> so I had to mention it. Yeah, I almost wish they would stick universally with fictitious cities and not include – like not include even cities like New York or something. I mean, they can keep Washington D.C., but yeah. <laughs> they kind of yeah. yeah I guess they kind of need to. Yeah. But, but um, the assassination attempt when Duriel tries to kill Joan. Yes. So he fires a gun at her, and then keeps driving without looking to see if it killed her. He just assumes that it does. Now I realize for he's a, some, he's a great marksman. Yeah, for somebody he must be. for somebody with the Flash's super speed, you can imagine that the the travel time for a bullet would be different. But for normal people, if you fire a gun at somebody who, based on the art, is only like twenty or thirty feet away, you won't have time to blink before you find out if you shot her or not. It's, yeah, she doesn't drop. No, it's like this has got to be. He has got to be basically turning his head as he's squeezing the trigger and driving out, and not even like it's it's a pretty lazy explanation that he he tried to yeah. kill her and thought he did but didn't. Um, that, that that's one place where um, Roy Thomas could have you know kind of tweaked the original story a little bit because right. that happens in the original story, but you know could have happened a little better. 
Because the whole tennis thing that happens in the com- in the original story as well. That's uh, he invented very little of this. Well, this and the the whole like medium middle section where the guy comes back and he thinks she's dead, and then he's shocked when he sees her, and and Jay uses that an ex- as an excuse to follow him back to, or uses that as a mode to follow him back to his hideout. You didn't need to complicate it that much. He could have just caught the bullet and gone after Duriel then and like beaten the information out of him or followed him back to the base. And this is another one of those cases where it's like, Roy, you don't have to Xerox the original script and hand it into your artist. You can put a little bit of yourself into this. Right. And I, I can't understand why that – like that's a, a piece of the story that doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. He keeps it. But he took out other bits that made more sense than what's in the issue. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of a kind of an odd I I I wonder how he worked. That's something I I I find very mysterious. Like did he have some sort of encyclopedic mind? We know he read these comics when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. And that they always stayed with him. So was he, you know, obviously this is too close to be a memory. But did he do research and then later, you know, write it up, having letting himself forget some of the details except his notes, and then, you know, it, that's how certain elements got lost. Um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not sure because it's it's not a Xerox, but almost is. It's. I imagine yeah. he, he had to have been referencing the the comic itself. He had to have had it with him. It's almost too close. Yeah. For it to be anything else. Uh, but then he, you know, and he changed things like he made the car explode because he'd already used the villain in uh, All Star in All Star Squadron, mm-hmm. or you know, things like that. But you know, mostly it's it's mostly the Golden Age story. Mm-hmm. We talked about Tuska's art a little bit in the last section, and again, I come back once he starts drawing the action panels. It's not that great, like the sequence on the beach. Yes, this isn't really spectacular, especially the last uh, panel on page eighteen, where it's just like extra hands popping out, catching the bullets. That's pretty disappointing. Um, the last page, the final page, is really kind of a letdown. Um, now, there's one part of it, especially, which I think is more of a printing error. We see the Justice Society, the original eight Justice Society members, gathered around and. They, they just, there's nothing really spectacular about that image. No, um, it's all sorts. It's all sorts. Comics number one, uh, number three, number three. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, in, around the table, but yeah. But that, the bottom corner when you get Jay and you get Wally putting his boots on, and you get this surprint to use the to use the phrase I guess from from the Who's Who podcast of what I imagine is supposed to be the ghost of Barry or the spirit of Barry. Right, but it it looks like a printing error. It looks like a like something like like a smudge or something was like copied incorrectly. It's just yeah, it there are too many shadows. Yeah, it doesn't in that corner. There. Yeah, and the and Jay is way off size. I mean, mm. even Jay is not supposed to be there because the while he's sitting on a bench, where's Jay in proportion to that bench? I mean, it's he's like. You know, his legs are cut off. He's way too big compared to Wally. It's, mm-hmm. it's a weird montage here. Yeah, and the shadow so doesn't, doesn't look, look right behind him. No, because it doesn't have his uh, helmet. I mean, it, for one thing, there's like one weird stray line that might be the wing, but it doesn't look. But yeah, the helmet. Oh yeah, it's it's incredible. Yeah, it's and, and yeah, it, like the the what the serpent that's 
on it's on top of them. That's the thing. The serpent is uh, partially on top of Jay and Wally. It's just right. yeah. It's but even that's cut off. He doesn't have his arms. Right. And, like one of his. It's very badly. I mean, even the way the whole. Uh, even if we don't mind the um, uh, the Justice Society at the table, mm-hmm. all of that stuff on the top of the page, the whole thing is very badly composed because you've got look at that. Look at the poor wedding of yeah, yeah. J- Jay and Joan with our man kind of yeah, peering into it. Is he it. presiding? Is he the best man or is he part of the t- – yeah, it's he's – like, He's like a giant at the wedding. But yeah. So it's, you know, it's, not, it's not a very good page. In fact, it's a pretty terrible one. <laughs> uh, it's the worst page of the issue because mostly – I mostly like what I see from George Jessica in this issue. The first half where it feels – again, it feels like a bit of a romance comic or something, a different genre – even and even the football story, like I like the football game part of the story. Um, I, I I think the art is appropriate. The art is fitting, and the art is good. It's just I, I'm I'm not making excuses for it. I think the art is good in those pages. But others, when he's drawing the the super speed and the the action, not good. Yeah, and it's usually in montage, yeah. that kind of thing. You know, the, the the where the one where he fights the racketeers, like his first mission. Uh, is a sort of montage where you're not quite sure what's happening. Um, you know, it's a lot of fists and people running. But uh, although again, that that montage on page ten, yep the the image of him in the upper right corner, that again reminds me of like a Mike Paraback or a more cartoony style. That's that's a pretty good image. Yeah, it just doesn't come together quite so nicely. Like small elements are good, yeah. uh, but I agree that when it comes to action, uh, it's it's not always great. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts about this story? Uh, the story specifically? No, I think I've uh, I've covered everything I wanted to. Okay. Well, then let's talk a little bit about the history of the Flash. Uh, the Golden Age Flash, this version, Jay Garrick, was created by writer Gardner Fox and artist Harry Lampert. He debuted in Flash Comics, which cover dated 1940, but would have hit the stands in late 1939, according to. Of course, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. That same issue of The Flash, by the way, also introduced Hawkman, Johnny Thunder, and The Whip. The Flash start in all 104 issues of Flash Comics, frequently appearing on the odd-numbered covers, while Hawkman, who also appeared in every issue, graced the even-numbered covers. The artist Harry Lampert only drew the first two Flash stories in Flash Comics 1 and 2. E.E. Hibbard took over penciling duties on Jay Garrick's adventures with Flash Comics issue 3 and continued to draw the character for the next seven years in various publications. In 1941, The Flash became only the third of DC's superheroes to spin out of an anthology book and into his own solo title, the previous two being Superman from Action Comics and Batman from Detective. Since Jay's anthology was already called Flash, his solo series had the awkward and unfortunate title, All Flash. Uh, He also appeared regularly throughout the 40s in Comic Cavalcade and as the first chairman of the Justice Society of America in All-Star Comics. Like most superheroes from the golden age of comics, Jay fell into disuse and his publications were cancelled or repurposed throughout the late 40s and early 50s. In 1956, the concept and character of The Flash was reimagined in Showcase Issue 4 by editor Julie Schwartz, writer Robert Kaniger, and artist Carmine Infantino, an event that marked the dawn of the Silver Age of comics. The new Flash, a police scientist named Barry Allen, got his own Flash ongoing series, which picked up the numbering from the old series with issue 105. 
In the historic Flash issue 123, Barry Allen crosses into a parallel dimension where he meets the Jay Garrick version, thus establishing the multiverse where different versions of the heroes exist in different universes. For the next 25 years or so, Jay would make regular appearances as part of the Justice Society of Earth 2 until the Crisis on Infinite Earths obliterated the multiverse and heralded the end of many Golden Age Earth 2 characters, at least for a while. And that about brings us up to more or less current with when the Secret Origins issue came out. Um, Cisco, had other notes on the publishing history? Uh, well, I, I mean, it's notable that he was one of the few, he was, you know, a big enough gun that he got his own series like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and uh, Green Lantern. And that name remained important to the DC Universe later. Uh, it was, you know, it was the first Silver Age hero and you know, started the whole Silver Age trend of superhero comics. Uh, although it wasn't the same Flash, it was still the name, the same name. Uh, and the multiverse was created in a Flash story because the two Flashes met up uh, for the first time. So f- the Flash has always been, and I think the the people working on you know large scale events like the Crisis on Infinite Earths and later events have usually put the Flash or some version of the Flash at the center of it. As if the Flash was, you know, that lightning bolt. I was that, going to say he's the lightning rod yeah, for these yeah. cosmic events. That's it. He's he, he, somehow he created the he creates the DC universe in whatever form it it has. He was part of the older universe as Jay Garrick. Um, the same name was the first hero to be born out of a new age of comics. Well, obviously, they didn't know that's what was happening in 56, but you know, quickly became that. And when they decided to say, well, the explanation is that there are parallel worlds, and those heroes you read about in the 40s were on a parallel Earth, which we can now visit and you know, cr- cross over our, our characters. Uh, that created the, the multiverse through you know, a Jay Garrick story. And then later, when when crisis happens, it's Barry Allen's death um, that heralds the death of that multiverse and the return to a um, a singular a singular universe. And they've used the Flash in that kind of capacity a number of times, including, sadly, the whole Flashpoint thing from uh, now three years ago, which created the new Fifty Two, which is a new version of the DC universe, which we may or may not like, but. He was an important character in the beginning because of that. He inspired, you know, a next generation, uh, and that, and there, then another gen, next generation, another generation after that, when Wally West took on the um, the, 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 the name. Yeah. yeah. Do you like the character? Are you a fan of the Flash? I'm a fan of super speed as a power. I'll say that um, it's one of the if when people ask, you know, people often ask you that kind of thing. What if you had a superpower? Would would it be? And for me, it would be super speed because um, there aren't enough hours in the day to accomplish everything I want to accomplish. And <laughs> I'm a, um, I, I don't have a car or a driving permit. This is one of my strange quirks. Um, so I walk everywhere I go. And so I, it, it would seem you know, a no-brainer to me that if I could run faster, think faster, work faster, um, I'd be happiest. So, so super speed has always been interesting. And because... Not the Golden Age stories didn't really have this, but the Silver Age certainly did, where they applied, you know, the science of it. They tried to find interesting ways to portray it, mm-hmm. to show it as one of the most versatile powers. 
that was true in um, the Silver Age stories. Uh, it was true during Mark Way's run on um, uh, with Wally West. Uh, so it's been true ever since. So S- Super Speed is interesting. It's interesting to you know to, to to show how it could be used interestingly, not just for running and catching bullets, but what else it can do. So those stories have always been interesting. But am I am I a fan of all every Flash it's ever been? I'm not a, fa- a fan of uh, Barry Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's probably one of the first DC superheroes I ever read uh, in French translation mm-hmm. because he was part of some kind of black and white omnibus books uh, that we had over here when before I could read English. And so he was in those – Barry Allen was in those stories. But he's never been someone I, you know, I, I cared to read or – or buy comics, you know, about him. So Wally West was really my entry into the, the flash and not even the early Wally West stories, really the Mark Wade run, uh, when it started, that, that's when I picked it up to see w- what it would be. And that's what was interesting to me, probably because it had more than one super speedster featured on the cover or whatnot. I don't remember the exact first issue I got, but you know, it was, it was during that, that run. So Wally West was my Flash, and through him, I met all these other Flashes. So yet I became a uh, Jay Garrick fan through that series. Mm-hmm. Although I do like, you know, I like the costume, I like the basic look, I like the the idea of older heroes and older generation of heroes. I like all of that. It's what drew me into All Star Squadron and other Golden Age related projects. So I'm a I'm a fan of these. <laughs> it's kind of when you say, "Are you a fan of the Flash?" I'm not a fan of the Flash. In every iteration, yeah. but I'm a fan of... I'm Not necessarily of the, the most iconic and most um, popular version, but the, the right. other, the ancillary Flash character. Right. I have a problem with the Crisis on Infinite Earths reboot and how it, it destroyed the multiverse and how it put everybody on the same timeline. I don't, I don't like that. I prefer the multiverse. I prefer the parallel dimensions in the DC universe. And... I have a few reasons for that, but I think chief among them, if I could point to two specific examples for why I don't, why I prefer a multiverse, it's Jay Garrick and Alan Scott, because I think when they're the alternate universe versions of the Green Lantern and the Flash, you just see them as another choice. But when you put them on the same timeline. Yes, they are the first versions of the Flash and Green Lantern, but because they're not the iconic versions that we know so well from the Super Friends and Super Powers and the merchandising, what came from the Silver and Bronze Age, then Jay and Alan feel like the beta test versions, like the, the, the primitive versions that didn't get picked up. We, we had this version, but then we needed to retweak it. We needed to like beef it up and find out, okay, what really works? And to me, when you put them in the same universe, Jay and Alan Scott feel like inferior versions of The Flash and Green Lantern. Whereas if they're not in the same world, if they're not in the same timeline, then they are apples and oranges. You can't really compare them. They're, just, they're different versions. And they don't feel like the type of guys who eventually got replaced by younger, hipper versions. Then they're still the A-list, all-star, big-game heroes of their world. It's, it's weird. That's, that's really the only way I can explain it. But I think when post-crisis, when everything was put on the same timeline in the same universe, for me, it hurts the credibility of Jay Garrick and Alan Scott. 
and I like those guys so much more, and I think they're stronger when they are the premier Flash and the premier Green Lantern. And that only works if they're on Earth 2 or Earth whatever, but not the main DC universe. So, Does that make sense? I see where you're coming from, although I'll make a defense for the crisis in that for these characters specifically, Green Lantern is a hard sell. Why would there be a Green Lantern before and then a Green Lantern core somehow? You know, So they had to fit that in kind of circuitously, which didn't work quite well. And I don't like that they do. I like the Alan Scott Green Lantern as a mystical, magical character not related to the science fiction. Right. It's just a weird coincidence that there's a Green Lantern core out there in the universe and then mm-hmm. there's a Green Lantern that's you know, is spawned. It's so similar, but it spawns on on Earth independently, which is a very strange thing. And the same thing could be said with um, I. I wouldn't. I don't put Flash in that category, but I would put Hawkman in that category um, because how could you know a superhero from the uh, '40s uh, have spawned independ- independently of you know very similar looking characters in you know on another planet? Yeah, yeah, that's which true. is what Thanagar was like, and that eventually led to you know one of DC's worst continuity cluster f's ever right it could have been it could have been saved with three words as mark <laughs> wade famously said all they needed to do was at the beginning of hawk world issue 1 right 10 years ago that could have <laughs> saved everything i know so um so so you know those those two characters were severely compromised mm. by the, the the whole timeline i don't think the flash was as much, especially since Barry always, well, not always, but as from um, uh, the Flash of Two Worlds, whether Flash was in the far past or Flash was on a parallel world, Barry was inspired by this person. Mm-hmm. He read comics of that person, which were written and drawn by someone who knew of him, whether you know through cosmic vibrations between universes or you know just someone who wrote comic stories about superheroes that actually lived, mm-hmm. which, was, which is how it is, it's retconned. So to me, he's, to me, the Flash legacy, uh, as kind of prophesied at the end of this Secret Origins, is the example of why it was a good thing to, to put them all on the, same, on the same timeline. In that there would be, you know, I think the strength of DC in the late 80s and early 90s was that it was selling itself as a long history and that the publishing company had a long history, but the characters had long histories and those histories impacted one another. And The Flash is again that example because Wally West is a direct product of Barry Allen who was an indirect but in the stories still kind of direct product of Jay Garrick's time as The Flash. And so there, were, there was a legacy there. There was a dynasty uh, and after Barry, after Wally would come another Flash, and you know Impulse played that role for a while. But and then there were flashes from the future, and you know they played with that history, and that to me enriched the whole Flash mythos. Yeah, uh, and it's it's a good argument. I've heard it before. It uh, it kind of that's sort of the difference. Like post and pre crisis, you've got the multiverse versus the feeling of legacy. And the the history that was that did come out of 
post-crisis. And I admit that like a lot of that is really cool. A lot of that legacy aspect and what they did with elevating sidekicks and creating this timeline, a lot of it was really good. But uh, for my money, I liked the multiverse a little bit better. I wish... I, I like the multiverse in, in concept. Obviously, I, I like it better just as a science fiction idea. They have parallel worlds. That's much more interesting. And then uh, when they explored those worlds by saying, you know, well, the characters we bought up from quality comics, they're on a certain world. And we can explore that world and those characters and they seem new and interesting. And, oh, what, what did you dig up this time? You know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. That was a great era for the multiverse. Today, there is a multiverse. And it seems to have become an excuse to take old Elseworlds or, you know, um, I, it's, I think it feels cheaper today. The, the multiverse is less interesting even though they've mapped it out. And, you know, that's, that's all very cool. But it's, they've been taking, you know, there's no reason for a multiverse today the same way there might have been in the 60s and 70s. When, oh, I, I agree. I think the, yeah. the multiverse was born out of necessity almost like after after the first creative whimsy of putting the two flashes together then the multiverse just kind of grew because hey these stories contradict each other we need to establish this i think now dc is doing a multiverse as either fan service or just as an excuse to tell elseworld stories and i don't know if i don't know if it works if it's not coming from the same the same place the same impetus i don't know how well it works well, when they, they limited it to 52 planets, mm-hmm. 52 parallels, I think that's when they basically said, well, you know, it's artificial. Yeah. Everything became 52 and, you know, 52 this and 52 that. And it, it was just an artificial construct, which actually it is in mm-hmm. the stories themselves. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, like a complex of worlds run by the monitors or monitored by the monitors, I suppose. But the... The whole thing is artificial, and it seems to come from a publishing place rather than a story place. And we need to fill up these 52 Earths. Well, what about uh, Gotham by Gaslight? That was popular, so that's an Earth. Red Rain, where Batman's a vampire, that's an Earth, because we're still selling those graphic novels. They're still on the shelves. So let's, you know, let's, like you say, it's, it's, it's a sort of fan service, but it feels more like a like a publishing house service mm-hmm. where we're going to keep these things alive so that the books keep selling. Yeah. You know, it doesn't seem as relevant today as it did back then. So I'm not too, I, I didn't miss it when it was gone. Really. Mm-hmm. I was more interested in discovering this new continuity and how it all fit together. That, that, that puzzle interested me as a reader uh, when they brought it back. So, Oh, well, that's cool because I remember from, you know, I was reading comics before it was, uh, before it disappeared, but it has yet to really capture my imagination the same way or yeah. it hasn't proven itself as a concept. Yeah, I, I get it. That is, that's a good point. Um, and, and I for, miss for the me, f- it's, it's a subjective case of the way I think about the heroes and their kind yeah. of hierarchy in terms of who's who's the most iconic who who should be the definitive character and part of it it all it all comes into the fact that most of these characters were introduced to me not through stories but through images through merchandising t-shirts toys and everything and the characters the heroes are icons not people to me so it's a weird way that my brain works that and when i look at these guys i want to see 
Alan Scott and Hal Jordan on the same tier of greatness. Yeah, but but, histo- but it's hard for me to reconcile that when they're because the historically, I, I don't see like say Jay Garrick is not a prototype for the fl- the iconic Flash mm-hmm. so much as he was in. If you put it all in the same timeline, he was the first. Right. So it makes him more important than what came later, even though the guy that came later had a more successful career, if you will. Right. But if you put them on Earth, well, then you've got the whole idea that the iconic Flash is on Earth 1. The original Flash is on Earth 2. So ob- immediately he's secondary. Exactly. Where historically he should, you know, uh, he, he can be first and yet. Barry Allen still be the Flash people remember. I mean, it's it's all semantics, really. Yeah. But Jay Garrick to me remains, you know, re- remains my favorite in any case. Even though I obviously didn't discover him when he was first published, that would make me a billion years old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about the math. Yeah, that that works. A billion. That's something like that. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, any other thoughts about the Flash? Um, I, think we've, uh, I think we've we've run circles it. around it. Yeah. Maybe nice we can uh, we could just do recommended reading and sure yeah um, yeah. Do you, if if readers want to know more about this version, the Jay Garrick Flash, what would you recommend? Uh, well, obviously, you can if you want to read some of the original Golden Age stories. Um, then probably the greatest Flash stories ever told would be a good book because not only does it feature four Golden Age stories, but it features plenty of stories for the um, the two Flashes that came later. Uh, obviously, the Flash of Two Worlds, which has been uh, reprinted many times, and it's, I think it's in that it's in that book. But for a where I fell in love with him, if you will, where. He took it. Uh, the, the best story for him, uh, for me, was the, um, and it's collected as well. It's called The Return of Barry Allen, mm-hmm. which is not about the return of Barry Allen. <laughs> and it, <laughs> it reprints. It's a lie. <laughs> it's a lie. It reprints Flash 74 through 79. Uh, so it's during the Wally West era of the book where all those super speedsters you know, come, come to bear. And, you know, so for people interested in the Golden Age, not only do you have. Uh, Jay Garrick in there, but you've got uh, Johnny Quick is referenced, and Max Mercury or Quicksilver also appears. So it's it's a nice place to find, you know, the whole quotation marked um, Speed Force. Uh, so that's and it's a very good story as well. And Jay Garrick's in there, and he's got a very strong role. That's what I would recommend. Going away from Flash specific books, I would recommend his appearances, like in. In the JSA book that came out in the late 90s um, by James Robinson and Jeff Johns, and even the Justice Society of America eight-issue series that came out in 1991 um, featured Golden Age versions of Green Lantern, Flash, Hawkman, Black Canary, and Starman. It was set in the 50s. It was on the timeline. It was one of their later adventures. Some of them had almost retired when they were kind of coming out, and, uh, and they're fighting Vandal Savage and Solomon Grundy. It's a fun story. Yep. Okay, Cisco. So where can people find you online if they need to search you out? As usual, it's called Cisco's Blog of Geekery, and it's got um, science fiction, television, and comic books, and role playing games, and whatever geeks are interested in. So am I. It's at ciscoid.blogspot.com, or just type in the word Ciscoid in your uh, Google. I'm the only one. <laughs> You've cornered the market for that name. <laughs> well. <laughs> All right. Well, one more time, thank you for being part of the Secret Origins podcast. I always have a blast talking about these books with you. So thanks a lot. A pleasure.
have our first correction retraction for this show. Kyle Benning appeared last episode talking about Shadowlass from the Legion of Superheroes. After the episode came out, he posted it on the WordPress blog and the Facebook page to correct an error on his part. I incorrectly listed my intro to the Legion, he said. I cited an issue of Adventure Comics that doesn't even have the Legion in it. What I meant to say was Superboy and the Legion issue 242. Had the twos and fours down, but wrong order and series. Thanks for that correction, Kyle. Last episode received Twitter favorites, retweets, and comments from Diablo Frank, Dr. G, Nerdologist, Firestorm Fan, Greg Arujo, Illegal Machine, Invader Sin, Kyle Benning, and Trekker Talk. The Secret Origins Facebook page received likes from Frank Alarcon, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Barr, Jamie Lee, Josh Hale, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Rob Kelly, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Tim Wallace, and Van Z. Rob Kelly commented on the Facebook page saying, It says something about the Secret Origins comic and podcast that I bought the comic and listened to the episode considering it features the dullest hero combo possible. Rob also cheered at Anais Nin getting name-dropped and hopes that becomes a regular part of the show. Andy Capellish commented on the cover to Secret Origins issue 8 saying, I love this cover. Dollman is a hard character to get right. The layout is perfect. And then the artist himself, Steve Lytle, replied to Andy saying, I always try my best to do the characters justice, with varying degrees of success. Well, I think he nailed it in this case. Van Zee said I was harsh on Roy Thomas for his unwarranted possessiveness over the Phantom of the Fair and other characters. When Van shared with me his message from Roy, I don't think he expected me to tell Roy to pull his head out of his ass. That might have come across as a little shocking, kind of a blindside hit. It put Van in an awkward spot, and I do apologize for that. Moving on, we got some more comments on the WordPress page. As usual, I'm not going to read every word of every comment, but I encourage everyone to get in on the discussion at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, made a couple of points about the Legion gaps that Kyle and I left. One, Grev does indeed become a part of Legion lore, acting as Shadow Kid, joining the Legion Academy, and eventually becoming the hero of Talek 8. I always wondered how Shadow Lass could join the Legion, in essence abandoning her post as the world defender she was meant to be. I don't know, Ange, I guess you have to ask Black Panther, Prince Namor, Aquaman, those guys. Two, one of the defining parts of her character is her relationship with Monel, and how they are chummy with the Ultra Boy Phantom Girl couple as well. I would have liked just a bit more of that stuff to fill in new readers. At the end of the Levitt's Giffen run, she marries a dying Monel. In the five years later stuff, she takes off into deep space with Valor to explore. 3. I wonder if the granddaughter versus niece thing was a way to clear up some stuff about her relationship with Grev. As far as I know, they have always been cousins. But if, in an early issue, he was said to be her brother, maybe Levitz wanted to comment on some muddy lineage stuff. That's kind of what I was thinking when I read it, but I don't know for sure that there was muddy lineage stuff to correct. And four, I do find it interesting that she is the first of the Legion to get a secret origin. Was the world clamoring to hear her story? Then Mark Sweeney commented on Ange's fourth part, saying, Though I love the character, Shady has always been a second-tier Legionnaire, and I'd have thought a more marquee member like Sunboy or even Dawnstar would sooner get the Secret Origins treatment. Strangely, Shady, or Tasmia Maller at least, has gotten two solo origin stories, the second coming a dozen years later in Legends of the Legion, when she went by the name Umbra in the Legion's second incarnation. Umbra was written with an edge, and a greater emphasis was put on her warrior nature, which made her much more interesting, in my opinion. 
That does sound more interesting. And I think we get a glimpse of that in this origin story. It definitely felt like she came from a warrior people and that she would have that spirit. Gregorujo said, This is the first issue of Secret Origins I purchased back in the day. While I'd like to think it was the Steve Lytle cover which persuaded me to pick it up, if I had to be honest, it may have been the Dalman origin which sealed the deal. Dalman has always intrigued me ever since a much younger me at the beginning of his comic book obsession read Action Comics 437, a 100-page giant with a Dalman reprint at the end of the book. Dalman may have been the first size-changing costumed hero I had encountered, and since the concept of back issues or comic shops were completely unknown to me, it took a couple years before I encountered him again in an issue of Freedom Fighters. Jeff Nettleton said, well, a lot, of course, he always does, and I love that, uh, but I'm only going to read a little bit of it. Touching on Ryan's comparison to the X-Men, there would be no modern X-Men without the Legion. It was Cockrum's work on that series that helped inspire and inform his work on those formative, all-new X-Men issues. Heck, Nightcrawler was originally conceived as a character for the Legion spin-off book The Outsiders, not Batman's team. Yeah, I remember the first time that I read the Phoenix Saga in X-Men. This would have been in trade years after it was originally published. Still, I remember being blown away by the Shi'ar Empire and the Royal Guard. I thought those guys looked so cool, and how amazing was it that Claremont came up with like 20 new superheroes just for that story? Some more years later, of course, I discovered that the Royal Guard were in fact just analogs of the Legion of Superheroes, and that Dave Cogram worked on the Legion and created Nightcrawler for that book, too, before repurposing him for Giant Size X-Men number one. And after all that, you know, I think Cockrum only drew the Royal Guard in, like, one issue before John Byrne took over that series. I might be wrong. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. No, actually, don't correct me. Just keep it to yourself. Uh, back to Jeff's comment. So Martha Roberts was being blackmailed by an Austrian 80s pop artist? Wow, that's different. You know, would I be crazy enough to end this episode with Falco's Rock Me Amadeus? Mm, no. No, I'm, I'm plenty crazy, but that's a dumb song, and I don't want to hear it. Referring to my editorial attack on Roy Thomas, Jeff said, Wow, Roy Thomas really piddled in your cornflakes there in the feedback section. I agree with most of what you said, but I just kind of shake my head at Roy. Then again, I got pretty bent out of shape by the image guys when they got started, but I was much younger then. Roy's a bit cranky in his old age. I can relate to that, though he's got a some years on me. Quite frankly, I think Matt Wagner is a much better writer than Roy. Thomas wrote some great material, but most of it wasn't terribly deep. Mage, Grendel, and Sandman Mystery Theater went far deeper into the human psyche, adult relationships, the nature of heroism, the destructive nature of violence, even in good causes, and a lot more. I'm not sure I'd want to read Wagner on a super team book, but on pulpy character, he is golden. Thomas is probably closer on his Conan stories, though he could do superhero epics. He just seemed to wrap up his mainstream career, for all intents and purposes, trying to relive the comics of his youth. I suppose that isn't much different than Jeff Johns revisiting old DC stories from the 80s. I never thought about that. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, In All-Star Companion Volume 4, Roy Thomas shares some Gil Kane layouts for a Ray origin story. Apparently, Murphy Anderson and Kane fought over who was going to get to draw the Lou Fine Reed Crandall quality characters. Kane also started on a Firebrand origin story as well. Yeah, this comment made me go back to the All-Star Companion number 4, where I discovered that Roy had scripted no less than five additional Golden Age stories that have never seen print, to my knowledge. These stories included origins for Hawk Girl, drawn by Howard Simpson. That would have been awesome. 
The Ray, drawn by Gil Kane, awesome as well. Firebrand, also by Kane. Sandman and Sandy the Golden Boy by Howard Simpson. Now, this would have continued the Sandman story from issue 7, explaining how he got a kid's sidekick and how he got his new costume and powers. And finally, the one that probably breaks my heart the most, The Origin of Wildcat, drawn by Greg Brooks. Now, as Chris pointed out, after the Crimson Avenger episode, this origin will never see print because the artist murdered his wife. I swear, Chris, every time you leave a comment, it gets me depressed. And then Chris and Jeff continued their comments thinking about Roy Thomas and his relationship with DC Comics, his attitude towards the characters he was writing, and how difficult it was for him to basically just watch his corner of the DCU become more and more marginalized after the crisis. Some interesting comments. I recommend you take a look. Siskoid came in and said, Shadow Lass, the question of why she should get an origin is one I've often asked. Roy's choices as editor were sometimes a little strange, though probably based on what creative teams actually wanted to do. I doubt that Roy Thomas had anything to do with the Shadow Lass origin or its inclusion into the issue at that point. I would think that would be all up to the coordinating editor, Bob Greenberger. It really was the only thing he was allowed to do. Uh, Siskoid went on, Eternity Comics made me buy a Dowman number 1 comic in 1991. Okay, maybe it was the naked chick the eponymous character was sitting on that did it, but it turns out it was some B-movie Dowman. Then Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog dropped some crazy knowledge on us. He posted a link to an old comic book resources article explaining how Shadow Lass wasn't created wholesale by Jim Shooter and Kurt Swan, praise be his name, according to Martin. The article cites an old Bits of Legionnaire business segment where a couple of readers named George Vincent and Mike Rickford suggested the idea for a version of Shadow Lass that would be the first black member of the Legion. Well, the character was given non-white skin color, but I don't know if blue counts toward racial diversity. Finally, ugh, the irredeemable shag popped in and asked about Shadow Lass's brother Grev and where the character originated. Siskoid came back to clarify Greb's first appearance. It's all in the comments. You should take a look at it. And then Shag said, I love that I've become the poster boy for acknowledging that a woman is attractive. Like using me as a shield protects yourselves against being accused of sexism. Ha! Love hearing my name, so keep hiding behind me, boys. Well, indeed we shall. And that is all for this episode. Once again, I want to thank my guests, Greg Arujo and Siskoid. Feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username Count Druncula. Also, if you want to send private feedback for the show that you don't want to post on the Facebook or WordPress pages, you can send me an email at blackcanaryfan at gmail.com. The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. She was a young American Nothing. This is a step and cuts his hand, showing nothing.
family while greatly amused by the fact that i'm on <laughs> on skype right now talking about comics uh, i've i've not heard nothing but teasing now for like the past day and a half <laughs> my youngest daughter looked at me with the headset on and said you look like you work at wendy's uh, 